Hi, I'm Lawrence Krauss, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. This episode is with the veteran science journalist, Matt Ridley, uh, who started out doing a PhD in, in biology, essentially, and moving on to become a journalist in a variety of areas, and most recently has written a riveting book called Viral with his colleague Alina Chen, who's a, uh, a researcher looking at the origins of COVID-19. And I found it incredibly eye-opening, exciting, and it reads like a detective story. I think uh, it was important that, that Matt and I talk about his experience in science journalism, which we've done, the experience of a scientist moving into journalism, which happens a lot, and, and his views on that and the nature of scientific communication before we moved in to the nature of his most recent book. And then we dived in there. Viral is a discussion of the origins of COVID-19. In fact, we still don't know the origins of COVID-19. And it's a comprehensive analysis of the possible origins, looking at all sides of the issue. And what is really exciting is that you learn not just perhaps to view with skepticism the statements of some in the scientific community and certainly the, the Chinese government on the nature of, of the, the origins of COVID. But w what I found fascinating was a discussion of the fact that there's a community of internet sleuths, amateurs who train themselves, who have since discovered very important things like master's theses de detailing the uh, appearance of COVID-like symptoms and uh, coming from uh, a bat cave, uh, not near Wuhan, but basically almost at the other end of China. And uh, Ridley and Chen look at all of the uh, evidence and do so impartially and examine all of the possibilities and, and allow the read, reader in some sense to come to their own conclusion, but more importantly, realize that there is no conclusion yet. We really still do not know the origin. And it's important to know the origin if we're going to think about uh, potential protection from future pandemics. And this became particularly important, in fact, a week or two ago when, when a group of scientists, I believe in Science Magazine, came out and claimed to have more or less definitive evidence that the virus began at the Wuhan seafood market. In fact, that evidence is not definitive. Uh, there's demographic evidence, which is interesting that, that the cases began near there, but no evidence, no direct evidence linking any animals at the seafood market to COVID-19 virus itself have yet been discovered. And I think it's worth taking those claims still with a grain of salt. And it's important to realize that I don't think the book is yet closed on this. In any case, reading the book, one learns a tremendous amount of, of science, as well as something about the sociology of science. And um, as I said before, fortune favors the prepared mind. And doing the kind of analysis they've done uh, helps prepare our minds. So uh, I found uh, the book great, and I, and I really enjoyed my discussion with Matt about these and other issues, and I hope that you too will enjoy it. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, we hope you'll subscribe. If you want to see the ad-free versions of this podcast or listen to them, I remind you that the Origins podcast has now moved to be hosted by Substack on my site, Critical Mass, lawrencekraus.substack.com, and there you can uh, watch ad-free versions of the podcast or listen to it. So I hope you'll either subscribe to YouTube if you watch it there, or that you'll subscribe to that site so you get notices when new podcasts come out and you can you can watch uh, all of them ad-free. Either way, I hope you enjoyed this podcast with Matt Ridley.
Well, hello, Matt. It's nice to, to uh, meet you virtually. I've, I've read your stuff for a long time and I've been a fan, so it's great. I really appreciate you coming on the program. Well, Lawrence, I've read your stuff too and followed you for years, so it's, <laughs> it's great to meet you. <laughs> it's great. At least it's one of the virtues of Zoom and the pandemic, at least as we can get together with people we want to meet, even if we can't actually meet them. But someday, someday I'll get to meet you. Um, exactly. And I, uh, this is the Origins podcast, and, and I, I, I want to say right off that I, I, I want to talk, I'll spend a lot of time talking about your book, Viral, because I think it's, it, I wrote you and told you I think it's a masterpiece, and I really do, and, and, uh, and congratulations on it. Uh, but you, you've written a lot and done a lot, so I want to I wanna talk about, uh, about your origins, which I find interesting, actually. You, you originally um, studied zoology, right? Uh, and Correct. And did a PhD in zoology. Um, yes, and, uh, yeah, so I, I was at Oxford, um, undergraduate, and then I stayed there to do a PhD, or I think uh, it's called a DPhil at Oxford, but it's the same yeah. thing, um, uh, in basically evolution of animal behavior uh, was was the sort of the, the, the field I was in. Um, but then I went no further in research. I didn't stay in science. Uh, I went off and became a journalist. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that in a second. But uh, by the way, were you at Oxford? When, I guess you got to know Richard Dawkins then when you were, when you were uh, uh, either an undergraduate or... Very uh, much so. I read The Selfish Gene. It, it was published just as I arrived at Oxford, by chance, 1976. And uh, people kept saying, this guy's written this amazing new book. And so I read it. And it puzzled me because unlike every other book on science I've read, it didn't say, here's the answer, believe it. <laughs> it said, here's a mystery, here's a puzzle, here's an enigma. I'm going to take you by the hand and I'm going to show you how weird and wonderful the world is, more weird than you could imagine, uh, and get you to see the world in a different way. And uh, so, you know, that was, and, and it was, I mean, I can sort of still almost feel the mm -hmm. the wonder of reading that book for the first time and just seeing the world in a different way so it was then a thrill to find that this guy was going to teach me uh, at some <laughs> point i think i think the only course i took from richard actually as an undergraduate was was a uh, uh, either a statistics course or a computer programming course i can't you know it wasn't a yeah okay interesting yeah well i know mean, he used to do that to, to look yeah at he did yeah. Um, but then he became a friend. Um, uh, he wasn't my thesis supervisor. That was Chris Perrins. But yeah. I, I knew him when I was a graduate student, too. Uh, and then when I began writing books, we became uh, friends again then. Yeah, I know. He's, uh, he, as you know, he's spoken highly of you to me. But, but um, did that, well, I'm jumping ahead, actually. But did, did Richard's book impact on your decision to write? To science popularize at all? Yes, I think it probably did. I, I mean, um, it, it, towards the end of my PhD, I realized that I was quite good at writing and I wasn't necessarily any good at research. And uh, one of my undergraduate tutors had said that to me. He said, you're, you're, you're so fluent that you can cover up some sloppy thinking or something like that. You know, it was one of those compliments dressed <laughs> yeah. up as a, as, as yeah. a criticism. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I decided that writing was the thing. But I knew in the back of my mind, even when I became a journalist, that what I really wanted to do was write about science. Not, I didn't want to write about, you know, um, economics or um, uh, love or anything like that, you know, novels or anything like that. Yeah. I wanted to write about science. You know, it, it had to be about this extraordinary way of understanding the world that we've developed. Um, 
And Richard was certainly a perfect example of the sort of person who I think was transforming the way we wrote about science from a, uh, a very didactic form into something else. Because the other book that, that blew me away as an undergraduate was The Double Helix by Jim Watson. Sure. Because again, it, it, it didn't portray science as a stately progress towards the answer. It portrayed it as a rather chaotic, slightly naughty, somewhat competitive um, scramble uh, to get to an extraordinary insight about the world um, before other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Andrew Watson was a, a unique character. It was sort of self, a little bit self-serving, but I remember reading that book too, and it was, it did not read really right. like a science book. It was, yeah. It was... In some ways, I don't think it is self-serving because he portrays himself as a as a as a blundering idiot uh, in the book. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, so. <laughs> and you know, he he famously had a terrible. I, I wrote biography of Francis Crick later, yeah. and, and Watson had famously began the double helix with I've never seen Francis Crick in a modest mood, and Crick <laughs> wrote him an absolutely furious letter saying, oh. "I'm never going to speak to you again." You you misportrayed it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and Watson's response was, well, I know nobody with less to be modest about. <laughs> it's a compliment. It's a compliment. Yeah. Well, I'm, mean, yeah. Watson had a way of, even if he was compliment, I've interacted with him once or twice, even if he's complimenting you, it sounds like a criticism. <laughs> and, Indeed. And, he's, a, he's a very complicated individual. Yeah. Well, look, I want to go even further back though. I want to ask what got you interested in, in in uh, science, I mean, you come from a. Uh, um, I don't know how to say it. I was going to say distinguished. You come from a upper a class, upper class British peerage background, and <laughs> uh, and um, and that could have, I assume, led to many comfortable um, alternatives. So, what got you interested in science? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've I've had an incredibly fortunate uh, upbringing. Uh, I, as you say, my father was was a lord. I'm now a lord. Yes. Uh, you know, lived in the north of England in a rural setting, um, and he was uh, almost a scientist. My father. He was oh. um, a, a very keen naturalist, and I did, wrote a few scientific papers actually uh, on one or two things. Um, but as a bird watcher, you know, not as a professional uh, scientist. But he got me interested in bird watching very oh. early on. I can remember being lifted up on his shoulders to look into a bird box and see the nest of a, of a bird, you know. And uh, and so I guess that's where it starts. Oh, um, sure, absolutely. And I became a obsessive. A lot of British biologists start out birding. It's interesting. I think the same is true in the US too. Mm. Um, and uh, um, but it was only I don't know when. I realized that this isn't just a hobby. This is a way into science, into this incredible process of uh, hypothesis testing that reveals deep insights about the world. Um, but, you know, things like evolution by natural selection, sure. deep geological time, the size of the universe, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know, are just wonderful concepts to come across when you're a, a young human being. And, and at some point, at least I, and I assume other people thought that's more interesting than anything else. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I can't disagree. I mean, and that's one of the things they are wonderful concepts. It always hurt, saddens me that, so, that some kids are, are, are shielded from that in a sense, because they're so, 
for one reason or another, it's not always religious. It can be many reasons, but but um, it's su- there's such amazing concepts that it's you want it's such a gift if you're a kid to be able to to learn yeah. about these things. Actually, I, I witnessed this firsthand when my son was growing up, and um, there there was some um, books called Horrible Science, mm-hmm. and they're illustrated and they're flippant, slightly smutty, funny. Um, you know, designed for rebellious teenagers rather Mm -hmm. than uh, serious Mm -hmm. people. And I would hear him laughing himself to sleep with these books (laughs) in bed. And it turned out he knew more about galaxies and um, dinosaurs than, you know, at the age of 12 or something, Mm -hmm. than almost anybody. But by contrast, what he was getting at school was Boyle's law or yeah. Hooke's law, you yeah. know, from scratch in a sort of rather boring way. Yeah. So I, I do think we get it the wrong way around somewhere. We, we should start with the black holes and the dinosaurs. Yeah, no, then... exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, in, in physics, it's always, when I tell young kids who are interested in physics, just get past the, you know, the inclined planes with sliding blocks, which are so boring, and eventually you'll get to it, you know. And I saw so I, when I, tried to teach uh, introductory physics so, and there's there's a lot of, in physics at least and i suspect it's true in biology and any and nowadays and it wasn't when i was growing up unfortunately it was just dissecting a frog and memorizing the parts of it and that's one of the reasons i didn't go into biology but but uh nowadays it's probably not the case but in physics there's lots of ways to introduce really modern concepts when you're talking about introductory science and of course that's what that's what's so fascinating for kids and and, and adults that's one yeah. of the reasons you know I write, but like like you do. Did your mother have it? So your father was the primary influence. Did your mother uh, have any so- background in in science or anything either, or no? No, not at all. Um, uh, my, my my mother was a remarkable woman and and uh, one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. But with barely any education, she had um, she had refused to go to school. And for some reason, my grandmother went along with this, um, wow. initially in Bombay in India, and then later in uh, Durham in the north of England. Her sisters went to school, but she didn't like it. So so my mother, my grandmother managed to track down a uh, Jewish refugee uh, professor living on, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? I'm trying to teach like a tutor, uh, tutoring, a tutoring, tutoring. Yeah. Exactly, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, uh, in Newcastle, the city near where she lived, and they agreed. I can't remember the name of this woman, sadly, but my mother used to talk about her. And they agreed on day one that would be no arithmetic of any kind, <laughs> <laughs> but that okay. everything else was fair game. And so she was very, very literary, very well read, but uh, most of science and maths was a closed book to her. Yeah, clearly, if you don't do arithmetic, it's uh, the rest is closed. Well, unfortunately for, well, yeah, unfortunately for a lot of women at that time, that was not, I mean, in her case, she chose it, but some of them were encouraged not to. But, but um, so, um, so it, by the way, your birding thing is interesting to me because um, I don't know if you, you know, I wrote a book about Feynman. I don't know if you re- ever know this story about Feynman, whose father took him walking in the wo- woods and and looking and among other things, looking at birds. And 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 Feynman asked what the name of this bird was, and his father said the name doesn't matter. Names, it's it's you got to walk. What really matters is 
is, you know, it's not classifying it. It's watching what it does and looking at its behavior and everything else. And I've always thought that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. That's very good. And that's the, the trap that an awful lot of birders and indeed biologists get into and that I was in for a long time, which is that you treat it as stamp collecting. You don't yeah. treat it as, as a, and you know, so for example, um, to this day, I'm much more interested in a common bird doing something interesting than a rare bird that shouldn't be here turning up you know exactly you yeah yeah no, a little bit more maybe not much more <laughs> yeah. i'm i'm i my my problem is i'm colorblind and that sort of put me off well i couldn't okay. so, right. at least in terms of classifying them i'm very happy that out in my backyard i have two bald eagles now and and some great herons here and and so Wonderful. they're fun to watch and 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 Wonderful. and and uh and actually one of my favorite I, you this is totally an aside but uh, my, my friend Werner Herzog once convinced me to read a book called The per Peregrine. Do you know this book, famous book? Yes. It's a, it's a beautiful, book. It, unbelievable book of, yeah. of, of science, in a sense, literary science writing. It's really kind of amazing. Right. Yeah, I love that and book. It, it, you mentioned Jim Watson earlier, and I, I did go birding with him once or twice. And, um, of course, he had this extraordinary experience as, as going birding with his dad in Chicago. Very, very keen he was uh, on this. And one of the people he his dad went birding with became a very famous murderer oh I, mean, I can't remember the details of the story but it's a, it, it was an extraordinary experience uh, yeah for him. <laughs> well you know people have different vocations and people can do many things at the same time um the the you went i want to now jump ahead to the decision i guess you kind of explained why you went why you didn't go into science uh, namely you, you felt you were better at writing than research and that naturally led you towards journalism or or uh, is that yes and um i uh you know cast around was lucky enough to get a, a, a an internship a three-month trial job on the economist um and that and i managed to turn that to a permanent job and then i became mm -hmm. the science editor there for a while sure uh, and i then actually did other kinds of journalism for them you know i was a political reporter for quite a long time yes the the, the 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 key thing about the economist was that it was a a very good quite tough school in how to write concisely yeah you were edited to death by really good writers mm -hmm. until you knew how to express something very precisely but very concisely as well yeah no that's a in fact yeah that's a and i it's funny because i people often once when, when i once I'd become known for my writing and um, people wanted to think of doing courses or something in writing. And I, I didn't know how I basically said the way to learn how to write is to just write. Yes, just, I agree. I, when people ask me that question, I don't know how to answer it either. You know, um, I know good writing when I see it. And yeah. And like just, that. well, and you get better and you learn, as you say, you, you know, you write, if you have the experience of yeah. writing piece, short pieces for papers or other things, you learn how to make it concise and you learn yeah. if you, and you, when you write stuff and other people read it and can't understand it, you learn what works and what doesn't. Yeah. So it's just right. And um, yeah, but you, but you mentioned you became a political reporter. I look, I, if I weren't, if it weren't for viral, I would spend a lot more time talking about, cause I find your history and all the things you've written fascinating actually. Um, as I say, I love I loved your book Genome, uh, which was one of the Thank first you. ways that I, I I first began to understand it, and it was a great a great way a great hook for thinking about about uh, about well, those it, topics. It was a it, it, it was a lucky way of dealing with a subject that was infinite and growing all the time. 
Yeah. In other words, you know, how do you write about the genes that are being discovered at the rate of knots in the yeah. human genome as we as we uh, sequence it? And it was really an excuse to have a ringside seat during the sequencing of the human genome. You know, I sure, mean, I sure. knew this was first time in four billion years that a creature is going to read its own recipe. I, I want to be hanging around, you know, yeah, sure. talking yeah. to the people who are doing it. How do I get to do that? I'll say I'm writing a book. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, sure. It wasn't quite that simple, but it was roughly that. Um, but then this this wacky idea that if I could find a gene on each chromosome that enabled me to tell a different story that would add up to a whole, then I needn't worry about the genes that I hadn't written about because they weren't on the right chromosome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. And it's a way to take, you know, again, as a physicist, it's a, you know, people are intimidated and it's a way to take, and they're partly intimidated because of, uh, in the case of physics, sometimes because of math, but also because of the vast amount of stuff and it seems so impossible to make get any footing so it's nice to find a way to to compartmentalize a little bit so that people feel less you know they're a gentle entry and yeah. uh you know again it's, it's something uh, i've been pretty uh, i mean aware one, of. The, the the model that gave me the idea of course was that book the periodic table by sure. uh, primo levy was it primo levy, primo yeah. levy yeah, exactly yeah no it's another great book in fact actually that yeah, those were both influential. I think when I wrote, anyway, Primo's book, when I wrote my book, Adam, which was about a, the life history of an oxygen atom from the beginning of the universe to the end. Yes, and um, exactly. Yeah, and it, and and like you, I think I, I, it's probably worth talking about this for young writers. I I often write books of when, it, when it gives me an opportunity to, or an excuse uh, to learn, to do something I w wouldn't do otherwise uh, that I might've wanted to do, but I wouldn't have put time aside to do it. Um, and you know, that's I learned, right. It's li it's licensed curiosity in a way. Isn't it? Well, for me, it motivated. If I have to, I look in yes. order to write this, I have to. And if I don't have to, I'm not going to do it. You know, I learned some. I knew almost no biochemistry for Adam, and it turned out to be that way. And when I wrote the book on Feynman th that I mentioned, was partly because it was. I said when they asked me to do it, I said, "Well, this will allow me to read all his papers." And I know I I. I, something I wanted to do, but I, I would, I just wouldn't have gotten around to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, but then you, anyway, you said you became, I want to jump to politics because you, um, because our politics, although as they get older, they probably differ less, but, um, um, <laughs> but they, but they, they have differed. And, and, yes. and you, you're, you're, you're a you've been a member of the House of Lords and a member of the Conservative Party, right? Um, and, and, Correct. and, um, yeah. and, um, and it's worthwhile saying an, uh, an advocate for Brexit, yeah. And and um, yep. And and I I just wanted to you know why? Where does all that come from? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, I would have described myself as standard left of center until I went to live in Washington for three years. Ah. Um, in the late 1980s, just the end of Reagan's period and the beginning of Bush's, mm -hmm. and uh. I um, there I came across, as it were, libertarian free market economics for the first time through think tanks, mm -hmm. but also politicians and yeah. stuff that people was writing and so on. Uh, and it had quite an impact on me. I, I I'd sort of thought in a very top down way about the economy. You know that, that the mm -hmm. world is run but run by governments, um, and then I realised it wasn't. It's run by people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so. I, I became a classical liberal, I would put it, you know, which is this phrase for someone who, who thinks that uh, uh, economic liberalism, uh, freedom for people to do what they want economically is a very good thing uh, within, obviously, the rule of law. Um, 
Uh, and that didn't make me a political conservative. Um, and that took a lot longer. Uh, and I wouldn't, I still wouldn't describe myself as, as, as a very conservative conservative, you know, on, on all the sort of hot button issues that matter, particularly in the US, like abortion, etc. I'm still you're, a liberal. You're, so, you're social liberal, but economic conservative. Exactly. So, well, social liberal and economic liberal is the way yeah. I'd put it. Oh, if you classically liberal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Using the, the word with a small L. Sure. As it were. Um, yeah. And the, the party that was closest to what I was interested in, particularly under, I would say, David Cameron, when I when I joined the House of Lords, was indeed the Conservative Party. Um, uh, and I uh, I had this opportunity to join the House of Lords. It's it, it, There's a weird system. Most Lords are appointed mm -hmm. uh, nowadays after reforms by Tony Blair, but a small rump of hereditary Lords are still there, sort of waiting for the phase two of reform, which has never come. They keep trying to make it come and it keeps not. And those are self-selecting. They choose who is to join them from among the hereditary lords who are not in the parliament. Mm. And they chose me. Um, oh, oh, you, did, you didn't they have to run me. for election, did you? For, no, well, no. it's a very odd election. There were 27 candidates and 48 voters. Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah. So there, <laughs> so there are it, some it, that are elected like, like Martin Rees. Um, no, he's not elected. He's appointed. So he's, appointed. he's, he's a life peer. So, so the vast majority are, are, as I say, appointed by, the prime minister or, or the government. I, I see the nominated, the ones who are like you, you had a finite term, is that right? Uh, no, and I didn't actually have a finite term. The fact that I've now left the Lords is entirely my own decision. Oh. Uh, by the December of last year, I had come to the conclusion that it was taking too much of my time. I wasn't do, able to do it, give it the time it deserved. And that basically governments are run by officials and parliamentarians have very little purchase on that process and I might as well write books instead. So yeah, that's a, a simplified way of putting Okay, it. that's interesting. Okay, so it wasn't as if you were eager to enter politics. You were you were a lord, but you could, you know, it was an opportunity to, to be involved and that's why you opened yourself to the nomination. Yes, and, and I, I went to the lords knowing that what I would do is pick certain topics and uh, become a either a thorn in the government side or a you know, a, a helper to it mm -hmm. um, on those particular topics. Science, innovation um, being the sort of main ones, but one or two others too. Um, uh, then, of course, we had Brexit, which was a huge three-year parliamentary battle following mm -hmm. the referendum that none of us expected, um, as it were. Uh, and I felt at that point very strongly that uh, that, that it was wrong to... Um, undo what had been decided in the referendum. Um, it, was that was that your reason for being in favour of Brexit? Because no, of the referendum? That, that, no, no. My reason for being in favour of Brexit was because I think the European Union is a uh, over-centralised, top-down institution uh, that is preventing Europe being good at innovation, uh, and um, uh, that when David Cameron suggested some sensible reforms and was told to get lost by Angela Merkel. Um, uh, I decided, well, in that case, I'm in favor of leaving. You know, it was that sort of conversation with oneself. I've actually had that conversation with, with David Cameron since. And, and he said, uh, he said, look, you don't understand how tough it was for Angela to offer even the concessions she did 
And I said, well, that makes me even more determined that we were right because there's, there was such pathetic concession. Okay, well, we could we could have a whole program, Brexit. Yeah. Maybe we will because I'd be I, interested. I, 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 I have my uh, own view of it. I'm, and I've I'm sure you camera. do, exactly. Yeah. And, and But but I'm intrigued by one thing before we get into viral that I want to, I really want, well, there are two things, I guess, because your interest in innovation is something that obviously I'm interested in. And I just want to make sure, we're, I want to see if we're in the same side here or whether we just have a fundamental disagreement. You have obviously you, you hit the point there. You don't like top-down government, and I understand in many, not just government, but many scientific organizations are run by officials and not the people who actually do it, which is why I become disillusioned with scientific organizations. And by the way, science magazines like Nature and and Science and all the, many of these groups. But yeah, but I'm nodding. You, oh yeah, I know. I see you nodding, and those who are listening should know you're <laughs> nodding. Um, although the, those who are watching will know. Uh, but you, there's some quotes from you, which I want to, I, I kind of understand, but I want to see if, how far you go. You said government is the problem, not the solution. The more yeah. we limit the growth of government, the better, better off we'll all be. A kind of standard libertarian kind yeah. of argument. But I suspect, and I hope that you agree with me that, however, there are some things that only government can do, in particular related to science. Yeah. You agree with me there, okay? I mean, there, because oh, well, the industry uh, maybe, is, well, let me, yeah. let me give my argument, is that there's some yes, things... Sorry. Industry, I mean, like Bell Labs, when it had a monopoly, could afford to fund curiosity different research. But when there's some research which is not going to have a payoff for 50 or 60 years down the road, it's hard to imagine private enterprise funding that research or having the resources or the ability to, sometimes in, in the modern world with big science, put billions or tens of billions of dollars into that research. And the only group that really can fund those long-term things, it seems to me, is government. So I wanted to see what you thought about that. Well, I, I half agree with you, but I don't think quite as much as as, as you're hoping or maybe fearing. Um, <laughs> um, I'm just interested. <laughs> and and the, the, where, I, where I do agree with you is, is that if government is going to take 45% of my income off me one way or another through different taxes, I would like some of that money to find its way back into innovation. Mm -hmm. Because I think innovation is what really delivers benefits to humankind, sure. um, and as well as uh, discovery and exciting things. And you know, so uh, it would be a shame if that money was lost to innovation. So the government has a duty to spend some of that on stuff that 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 does, uh, you know, that that needs to be done if we're to be um, progressing and seeing improvements in human living standards and improvements in knowledge of the world. But I think there is a quite a good case to be made, and my friend Terence Keeley makes it, that government spending on science crowds out other possible sources of spending on science, that quite a lot of philanthropic spending on science would step forward in the absence of government spending. And this is the point he makes, is that scientific knowledge is like a sort of club good. Um, you could, if you're in the club, you get this knowledge you know if, if you're at the forefront if you're part of the team that's making discoveries you get bits of information that are that give you an insider advantage and so even esoteric research of no particular value might well be funded by private industry to some degree and and after all you know there's lots of there's been tons of private funding of art and indeed science over the centuries before governments got involved. And what, you know, what people like Terence point out is that um, the two countries that spent least public money on science before World War II 
were Britain and America, whereas the two countries that spent most were France and Germany. And it's not clear that one side of that argument did better than another. But after the World War, where, where science became big science and the United States yes. started spending, it had a huge impact on the American on economy, among other things. Yes, it did. But then the, the private sector also had a huge impact. Of course, yeah. Know. But uh, let me, let me, I mean, you, the Human Genome Project, which you said you loved in a sense yes. to be a part of, was something government did. And, you know, Craig Venter might well, have said yes he would have no. done it Craig, otherwise. Yeah, yeah, Craig Venter ambushed it. And, yeah. uh, and I was very much on. The, the other side of that argument. I, I mean, I was a friend of of um, uh, John Sulston's and mm. Jim Watson's and mm -hmm. these people who were part of the public project. And they were horrified by Craig Venter's intervention, particularly the stuff about how he was going to patent yeah. parts of the human genome. And rightly so, you know, that yeah. would have been uh, would have been outrageous. Um, but he didn't half shake it up. You know, he came along and said, look, come on, stop wasting your time plodding through the foothills. Let's shotgun the thing yeah. and see whether we can do it quickly. And he wasn't entirely right. You know, he, he, he couldn't have done it without the public project. But That's on the other right. hand, he did speed it up. Yeah, so, I think it's that need, you know. And and I mean, I, I, yes. I threw that out as kind of an easy as a softball because I yes. know because I knew a venter and I know him. And, I, and um, but there are other things like particle physics that are just are there's no way. There's no way that that, that private industries. Now you may say, and some people do. They may say, I don't. You know, it's not worth it. I, I happen to think it's worth it. But, but you know, the CERN, the Large Hadron Collider, the, the discoveries we've made, and uh, I would never be funded by by by. I think by you're, private. You're you're almost certainly right, but I just wonder whether Bezos or um, uh, uh, Gates would do it. You know, well, you know, I, I, I've been involved with some of them on a few things early and, you know, and and if it's just a billion dollars here or there, <laughs> which used to be a lot of money, um, yeah. maybe, but not, I don't know if it's 10 billion or 20 billion. And, yeah. and you know, and again, uh, I'm not a huge fan of human space exploration, I should say that, but, but, uh, but the space program, again, you know, you, uh, you know, you see Tesla, I mean, you see SpaceX doing wonderful things, but without I think without the initial investment that NASA had done into into yep. into going to orbit, yep. Tesla, and I know Elon Musk, I and mean, he would agree. I think that they, yeah, but the then government if, could create this stuff, and then private industry can piggyback on it and take it to places government would never do. Correct, but then my more libertarian, I, I basically agree with you. I'm just disagreeing with you here for the <laughs> for the sake of it. But sure, but uh, my more libertarian friends would say, yeah, but look at the way Goddard was funded by the Guggenheim Foundation. Yeah. At yeah. a very early stage, yeah, which yeah. actually gave a surprising platform for NASA to build on, blah blah blah, you know. Um, but then I guess you have to take um, uh, Werner von Braun into the equation. I don't know how you fit that. Into yeah, exactly. Course. Well, you know, I think I, I'm influenced also. I have to I'm, I'm stress this because for a while I was working with a number of people, including some well-known industrial types, to try and, uh, especially during, I think it was during the Bush era, to try and encourage the government to actually spend money on science and and to support fundamental research, not just right. applied research. Right. And, and the point was that there was a big study done, and it might have been when you were in Washington, but a very important study done that showed that claimed that maybe up to 50% of the GNP of the United States was based on, on investments in one way or another, not necessarily government investments, but investments in curiosity-driven research. You know, right. and that again at a time when Bell Labs could afford to do that well, and that sort of thing. Where I think I think you and I will definitely agree is that I think certainly in the UK, and I'm pretty sure in the US too, recent research funding has become very um, prosaic in its demands that stuff be relevant. 
mm-hmm. um, and you know will lead to technologies. Um, and you know, my wife's a practicing scientist, so I sort of hear some of this from her. But you know, you fill in the grant proposal, and you've got to say what its impact is going to be. Um, which, I mean, you if you can know. say that, it's not you, very interesting. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> I used to say I would lie. I, you know, in, when I would write grant proposals, you'd have to say what what you're going to be doing three years down the road. And I'd say that's always just an, a lie because if I know what I'm doing three years down the road, it's not going to be interesting. I'll do it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll do it now or hopefully, the, you know, if there's a new surprise coming along the yeah. way. And yeah. now, and so again... I, I, com- I completely agree with you that, 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 that we should, with the science funding we have, we should encourage a lot more blue sky stuff that will will, will have dividends sometimes, but quite often and, won't. And, and I won't spend the whole program on this because I've talked to others about it, but it's even worse now because you now not only have to justify that it its relevance, but you have to somehow explain. There's a case of a, a colleague of mine I know who's a chemist who didn't get grant funding to buy a piece of instrument for a spectrometer because he had to explain how that would help diversity. And, and, and that Ouch. has now become, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's now well, become the big um, thing here. I mean, there's that famous exchange between, um, I can't remember which physicist it was and a senator, you know, about an accelerator. And oh, Robert Wilson. Was, yeah. Robert Wilson, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's the kind of thing that makes the country worth defending. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Will it help the net? I think you should see it in the same way as art, actually. Yeah, you know, yeah that, exactly. That if if you, you don't say to Leonardo, um, come on, what use is the Mona Lisa going to be? <laughs> and for I've, me, for me, the discovery of black holes or evolution or something is in that category. Exactly. It's a fantastic See, I, fruit of civilization. It doesn't have to be the seed of something else. Yeah, I often say the unfortunate thing, although it's not unfortunate, but the unfortunate thing is that science breeds technology, because if it didn't, people wouldn't ask that question, you know, they because exactly in music or I, they, I use the same thing, da Vinci or, or, or Bach, or, you know, what use right. is a Bach, and, you know, and and, and, exactly. and... and actually, that's part of my motivation for saying, although this annoyed some scientists, but I think wrongly so, uh, in how innovation works, that that uh, technology often breeds science just as often as the other way around. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That, that, yeah. You know, vaccination led to immunology. Um, thermodynamics came out of the steam engine rather than sure. the other way around. If you look at CRISPR gene editing, it's, it's sort of the yogurt industry played a key role before academia, really, um, etc. So, so I think it, it, it's a two-way street. And the, the linear model that you start with science and end with technology is something that almost nobody, even going back to Vannevar Bush and people like that, they didn't, they knew it was wrong. Yeah. And yet politicians still think it's the, the, the main deal. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, and I think science is, yeah, it's the ideas of science ultimately that are in some sense. So what science is all about and the technology, the relationship with technology is wonderful and fortunate and it's changed our lives and made it better. But it's, uh, but it's not the excuse for trying to understand how the world works. Uh, That's this, that's an amazing, amazing thing. We're fortunate enough to be able to do just like we're fortunate enough to be able to appreciate music and art and literature. That's the prize actually. Yeah. Isn't it? You know, that's uh, the, the other is the means to an end. Yeah, exactly. Now, last thing before we get to viral, because I have to, because I, I I don't know if you know, I wrote a book recently called The Physics of Climate Change last year that came out. And oh, the yes. purpose of it, by the way, was actually for a libertarian friend of mine, believe it or oh, not, yeah. because because he had told me that, you know, he didn't want to, he, what turns people off is being, re- reading these books, telling them what they have to do and yes. what they have to sacrifice and this and that. And so I thought, well, if you really want to have sensible public policy, you should at least know what the issues are. 
And, yeah. and if you can't get people to listen by talking about policy, I just wanted to write a book about the science. There's not one policy proposal. There's not one, one thing in there. Yeah. Um, Perfect. And, and I, I think it, I'm afraid I should do it. Yeah. I hope I'd like you to do it. I'll send, try and yeah. have it sent to you by my British publisher because I, I'm, I'm pleased with it because it's pretty, it's also short. I also think science books should be short. Biographies should be long, but science books should be short. But, okay. um, yeah, but, but, uh, but I know that at least you're portrayed in some sense as, uh, you know, in, uh, on the climate issue as, 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 as poo pooing concerns yeah. and i wanted to just touch on that because it's an issue yeah. obviously yeah of, yeah so well i've written about climate uh science and climate policy as a journalist for um damn near 40 years i now realize um because as science editor of the economist 1987 yeah. it first started to come up as an issue um i was covering it then i've not covered it continuously i've not been as it were a beat reporter on this but i've mm -hmm. written about it on and off and I've gradually become less alarmed over the decades. Uh, and I've seen the rest of the world become more alarmed. And I think they're making a mistake by being too catastrophic about it. Um, I think I, I'm what's called a lukewarmer. I, I think it's real, it's happening. I think it's happening towards the lower end of the range that the IPCC talks about. Um, you know, it's we've had roughly half the warming per decade that the first IPCC report said was the minimum we were going to get, 0.3 degrees per decade. Mm -hmm. We've actually had 0.15 or roughly mm -hmm. 0.17, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so uh, I, I think we're making more of a mistake by over, uh, by exaggerating the problem than underplaying the problem. But more importantly, I think that it's re resulting in us taking measures that are... Um, damaging and dangerous for people's welfare, like not allowing people to use fossil fuels in developing countries where a billion well, people I... have not got access to electricity. Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely, yeah, I would agree cetera, with you there. That so, part about that the developing countries need to develop. And there's an- Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, absolutely, um, I agree with that. And, you know, so, uh, you know, it's a vast topic. Uh, yeah. This, and uh, I try not to get too stuck in it but every you know it's it's so unfortunately it's hard that to, one yeah. has to have a view on it and if people ask me what i think that's what i say is that i think it's uh, it's an issue we need to tackle it but i think we mustn't rush into premature technologies that that do more harm than good um, and also there are other environmental issues that i think are more important actually at the moment i think invasive species are a greater threat to uh, biodiversity and extinction uh, and i think overfishing of the oceans is a is a bigger issue than than climate change um so uh, but that does annoy people tremendously when i say that and yeah. i don't mean to annoy either you or any listener no, no i don't get um, i know i'm i'm i think these <laughs> i think the whole point of things is not to be annoyed but to have discussions and try and learn exactly and, and exactly. um and and it's and even to disagree because you know i i this is my main point for not censoring because sometimes you discover you're wrong um, when you learn, when you hear someone who says something you disagree with, and yeah. um, and, and, and and you know, boy, am I going to be embarrassed if in my nineties, in the twenty fifties, um, it uh, turns out that we're living in a uh, um, roasting hell. Well, I don't know about roasting hell, but I, I, I th my argument for, and I don't want to. This isn't as people will remind me when they hear this, this isn't about me, but I, I will say uh, <laughs> um, uh, that, that Mike, Mike, I'm completely in agreement that I, I really hate the catastrophic 
group of people who say your children are going to be dead in 10 years and that they're just as in my mind they're 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 equally almost worse than the people who who deny it because they just don't want to hear it but um but i guess for me because of the um uh, uh the reason there's some urgency and it wouldn't be otherwise because these effects on the whole will take t- decades is the fact that carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere and and yeah. and if you don't do any you know if we had done something over the last decade there would have been that would have been a hundred basically a hundred gigatons of carbon that wouldn't have been you know at least or in principle f- at least 50 gigatons of carbon and every time it just becomes harder to address the problem the longer you wait and for me that's where yeah. where the, the the sense of urgency of you know it just becomes harder technologically and politically to address the problem if you wait another decade or two before you do anything so we can have that discussion anyway maybe you yeah. want to you can comment on it if you want or not but but well, I, I, I the 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 counter to that, which I was writing about last week, actually, is that if, as I increasingly think is likely, fusion is going to be a practical reality, but not before 2050, then rushing to net zero by 2050 might be a bit premature. We might be better off choosing 2070 or something like that. Well, you know, and, and it's true. I just tweeted for the first time that maybe the eternal statement that fusion is 25 yes. years in the future might <laughs> might might change we'll see i mean that the uk experiment that was just uh, that you probably wrote about is, is interesting yes. and we'll see if it's here i still have i mean you know it's it's what look i'm a huge fan of the research i'm still there are a lot of issues i mean even if we can do it it's it's a it's a highly intensive centralized investment with a lot of money and and it's That's a true. really it's really important for hum, the human future but it's not going to be a silver bullet uh, that's going to solve no, i agree although although i think allowing nuclear fission to uh, innovate which we've effectively oh, oh, stopped it from doing i agree with um, you completely is much more of a silver bullet um, oh yeah it's much more important i don't think it can be 100 i think some people say it can but but because there are a lot of issues but yeah. but yeah i mean i'm you know this notion of the fear of nuclear fission is something i've talked about a lot so it's interesting we we don't i mean i'd like to have that discussion sometime even privately um and i'll send you the book and you can let me know what you think yes please i I look forward to reading it yeah but now let's talk about your book because um um i think uh, well i forget how i first heard of it but but i but i did and and it is i i was just so impressed it's 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 a it's like the best detective stories but it's better because we don't know who did it (laughs) And, (laughs) and and that's what that to me that's the great thing is here you read these stories trying all the different clues and 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 it's all and as a scientist, I love not knowing who did it because it means there's something to learn. But in this case, in some sense, as far as I can tell, the purpose of writing it is that not knowing who did it is an issue that that is of some importance, and that's probably might have motivated why you wrote it. Well, I'm really pleased you put it that way because that's exactly what I feel about it. I, I feel that the the book is all the better for the fact that we don't know, we say we don't know, but we take the reader by the hand and we lead him and her down every tunnel we can find and sometimes there's a brick wall at the end of the tunnel and sometimes there's a great big gaping cave um and so uh it it very much i mean writing it was like a detective novel you know i can tell do you follow this lead or not do you you know and it's and that was that why way it was in so incredibly valuable to have a co-author um yeah uh, uh, alina chan because she was able to tell me not to be so stupid as to follow that lead for the following reasons and also not to speculate you know she wouldn't let me speculate in the book oh, she said let's let's stick to stuff we can be pretty sure about 
um, you know, if you say, so, so why did they do that? Let's have a paragraph on that. Nope, that's speculation. You know, so we, we yeah, actually... Whether, you must have gotten a few in, because there's a few, I'll, I'll get some quotes where yeah, there are, say, there well, are a few, you know, a few but bit. how could this have been the case if they didn't know that? And so, yeah, yeah no, exactly. I mean, you can't, it's impossible to not. I was going to say Alina was going to be on the program, but couldn't as well. I would have been... Yeah, I'm so sorry I, she was unable to join. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a first for me, because I've never done a podcast with sort of two people, but it would have been interesting to see your take. Well, of course, then if we'd done it, I wouldn't have focused on your you so much so i've enjoyed this as well but oh well uh, um uh, then it uh, it's a pity she's not here because she wouldn't have, she wouldn't have let me bang on about my youth i'm sure uh, no no i like i think it's she's important a, she's a fantastically I, articulate person so it would yeah have been well, fun. I, maybe sorry we'll do i don't know why her. i didn't work out but it didn't, yeah. yeah no no any in any case i i want to go through it and 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 i have um, and and in in the next little while and i'm not, obviously i'm not going to take the six hours that all my notes might might mean might take but 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 um because i have a lot but uh, but I want to start, uh, your interest kind of began with pieces you wrote for the Wall Street Journal April and May of 2020. Correct. And and that's what led you to Alina uh, Chen. I mean, that's what, well, what got you interested in writing the, pe- the, the, the Wall Street Journal pieces in the first place? Oh, because I knew that the beginning of pandemics is always interesting. There's always a, a, an animal to human story. Yeah. It didn't even cross my mind at the early stages that there might be a laboratory uh, link. Um, uh, you know, I thought so when I first proposed to the Wall Street Journal that 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 they need that there should be an article about the bats behind the pandemic. Um, it was very much saying, you know, which bats? Why? What? Yeah. What? You know, are people eating these bats? Uh, mm-hmm. If not, what are they eating? Um, how are they coming into contact with them? Where are they finding them? That kind of thing. I thought there was enough. Particularly because in the first weeks there was that theory it came from snakes. There was mm. then there was the pangolin story. You know, it was a bit confused, and I mm. thought it needed sorting out. And Gary Rosen of the Wall Street Journal was kind enough to to let me have a crack at sorting it out. So uh, yeah, so I'm coming at it saying this is a big story. It's got genetics in it, but it's also got um, zoology in it. That's one of my things <laughs> i want to write a story about it <laughs> and then and then i think it was alina i mean the key you know we'll talk about smoking guns but i guess a key potential smoking gun that makes one one wonder about its origins and i should say the book is really about the search for the origins of of and and both the the the, the what happened and also i'm happy to say the science of it as well which is really uh, i think interesting and we'll get to but the, but the thing that begins to make you worry, there are a few things, of course, right away, besides the Humphrey Bogart line, which we'll get to, is is um, is the fact that uh, at least I think Alina in one of her papers said, you know, it looks it's strange because it looks like this thi- this pen- this now what is now pandemic, which has just begun, is that this virus seems unusually well adapted um, for humans. For the beginning of such a, 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 a pandemic, and that Correct. that was that was sort of the first worry, and that's what got you in touch with Alina. Am I right? Correct, and it's 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 what uh, it's what got me to start taking the lab leak seriously, mm-hmm. because uh, I in February and March I read the paper in the Lancet, the paper in Nature Medicine, saying it, whatever it happens, it can't possibly be a lab leak, yeah. and I thought, well, these guys are virologists; they must know what they're talking about. So. Fine, I'll take that on trust. I don't mm-hmm. fully follow their arguments. And, well, you know, when I've got time, I'll try and understand exactly yeah. why they're saying that. But you know, they must be right. They must know what they're doing. And then I read this paper by uh, Alina and two colleagues 
uh, which said the virus is surprisingly well adapted to infected human beings, affecting human beings right at the start of a pandemic. That's unusual. Normally, it's not very good at transmitting between people when it's just jumped out of an animal. And the other thing she said was it's not changing very fast. Um, normally, it, and she had this chart showing that in SARS, the first cases showed a lot of genetic variation early mm -hmm. on um, uh, as the virus essentially learns in an evolutionary sense yes. how to infect this new host. And that period just doesn't seem to be there. The, vir the, the genome of the virus was very stable in the early cases. We knew enough to know that. And at that very week, the Centers for Disease Control head in Beijing, George Gao, uh, announced that the, they thought it had not started in the market after all. Uh, they thought the market was a super spreader event. The market was a victim, as he put it, not a yeah. perpetrator. And um, the, the coincidence of those two things made me revisit my uh, uh, conviction that it hadn't come out of the laboratory, made me look more closely into the laboratory, uh, and made me look more closely at the papers which had rubbished the laboratory theory, and I found they were actually very weak in their arguments. Yeah, yeah we'll talk about um, that. And uh, so that's when I became convinced that it's an open question. Not that it was definitely the lab. I, sure. I'm still not convinced of that uh, nearly two years later. Um, and But I did find Alina's arguments, both in her papers and in her emails to me, just helping me as a journalist, mm -hmm. um, to be very perceptive, very clear, and very uh, um, well argued. Uh, and so I came to rely on her as a source more and more. And then I made this proposition that we write a book together. Well, that's, it, was, it was clearly beneficial, I think, for both of you. I hope she feels it's beneficial too. I haven't had a chance to ask her, but I assume so. Although maybe. Um, I think maybe. so, because I don't think either of us could have done it without the other. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's a, it clearly was a great collaboration. You get that sense of the give and take when you read the book about, well, you know, Alina said this and led me to this, right? You know, and, and then you can see your history as a science journalist pushing in a certain direction. The book yeah. begins with, interestingly enough, and, I, and it's important because it kind of comes back to it. Um, and once again, you know, there's a lot of, as you say, there are a lot of red herrings. There, and I thought it was amusing. You said some of them are little and some of them are huge caves. And I thought that's metaphorical and, and literary, <laughs> <laughs> literally that as well. But, but it begins in a sense with a cave or at least a tunnel. And, um, and uh, because the book is really trying to look at the, at, at the origins of this, as I say, historically, but also scientifically. And it begins with two, 2012 with six men in the hospital in Kunming, um, uh, and who, who had been cleaning out bat guano and, and, uh, I think I know why, but why, why did you begin there? Well, um, the, 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 what we're after is evidence of bat viruses that infect people directly. Mm -hmm. And there was an incident we now knew, although we didn't really know this at the start, it hadn't been properly uh, reported, there was an incident in which um, six people got sick while shoveling back guano in a disused copper mine. And 
top virologists from all over China were summoned to try and understand what was going on. And the conclusion that all of them reached as this medical thesis reports was that it probably was a bat virus that they had caught, which would be the first time that a SARS-like bat virus had been caught directly from a bat by a human. So it was therefore of great interest to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And the Wuhan Institute of Virology was, was involved in not only looking at this, the human samples, but also going to the bat cave and seeing if they could find viruses in the bats. Um, and uh, to just now, two years later, Dr. Shi Zheng Li of the Wuhan Institute of Virology says she thinks the miners did not die of a virus, they died of a fungus infection. Yeah, it's um, uh, Well, maybe, but that wasn't what they thought at the time. So it's still relevant. And they did find in that mine shaft, we now know a number of SARS-like viruses that they took back to Wuhan, which is a long way away, 1800 mm. kilometers by road. Um, uh, and one of those turned out to be the closest relative at the time of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that was causing the pandemic. Um, so effectively, they found the closest relative in their freezer. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. It's interesting. Let me interrupt what's for a even second. More, okay, go sorry. On. No, I was just going to say, and, and for us as sort of amateur detectives, what was particularly troubling was to find that when they published the first genome of the virus that was in, infecting human beings, uh, and they said, we found another virus in, the, in our freezer, that wasn't the way they put it. They said, another virus has been discovered, which is called RATG13. And I spent a couple of days saying, right, well, where did they find it? I you know. Yeah. Where's it's the, where's the first report? What does you know? What does it look like? Who was there? You know, under what conditions was it found? And it didn't exist before this paper. And we now know the reason it didn't exist is because they had renamed it for that paper, but given no reference or link. Yeah, no, and it's, it's... that looks awfully like an attempt to have us not look into the um, background of that sample and what happened in that mine shaft and the fact that people got sick that might not be the reason but there's never been any other good reason brought forward for that renaming and it did put people off the trail for a couple of months uh, it took us that long to work out and to find thanks to various internet sleuths to find the theses that gave us all these details so that's why we start with that story because we, we it we not we're not saying that virus that killed yeah. those three people is the same as the virus that caused the mm. pandemic. Mm. Clearly, it's not. It wasn't yeah. very infectious. Yeah. It's six years ago, etc. But it is an indication of where to look, perhaps, for where the virus may have come from, and an indication of how it might have got to Wuhan, which is the big question. You know, With, we know uh, that absolutely. we need to get a virus all the way from southern Yunnan all the way to Wuhan, and we don't know how to do that easily, um, and that's what we need to solve. Yeah, no, of course you 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 anticipated my my next few questions and such. My, my, no, no, it was great. I'm glad you did. You anticipated my introduction because it's interesting that the, you'd think that this and any any person who, if this had been known, would think that that's immediately what we will go to. If in 2012 there had been this this um, outbreak, and if and if there was and indeed it was sequenced and found later uh, very early on to be 
a close relative, you'd think that'd be the first thing people would turn to. And so that incident becomes important later on in the book because it took a long time before people knew about it. Instead yes. of instead of no Excellent. instead of the researchers pointing directly at what was an obvious interesting direction, independent of pointing blame or anything else. But in you know, here's a here's a a, a, a SARS-like virus that that is that is the closest thing to to the to the one we have you know that's infecting humans and it was causing and and there were and whether it was causing or not there were people who were seriously ill at that time boy you'd think that'd be the first thing we would have heard when when it came up well, but none of us heard it yeah and just to to illustrate that when i wrote my piece about the bats behind the pandemic for the wall street journal um i wanted to say exactly where they'd found that virus because they denounced that virus alongside the the, the genome of, of the uh, mm -hmm. pandemic virus uh, and as i say i couldn't find the the source and so i remember you know i, I read all their papers from that that, that institute and I, I worked out that they often got viruses from a cave called the shitu cave in uh, and i thought well that must be where they found this thing but i can't get them to reply to emails and i can't find any links um and so in my first draft for uh the wall street journal i said they found this very similar virus in the Shitu cave, brackets, question mark, question mark, to remind myself to go back and check yeah. <laughs> if that was true. And I had to take that out because I couldn't verify it. And I thank God I did because that would have been completely false yeah. information. Yeah. But it shows that one was being misled by what was being published. Absolutely. It's this misleading aspect that is very concerning. And I have a quote about that in a second. But you also illustrated that you eventually found out about this, as did the world. Because of Internet sleuths, and I was, I was, I found this one of the most fascinating stories, and in a sense humbling, because I realized I couldn't do what they do. And every time someone does something I, I don't think I could do, I'm always impressed. And these are some of these people, self-trained, uh, took it upon themselves in their own time without pay to ultimately discover things that worked out to be true that the scientific community was either confused about or was being withheld. And the, and there's a there's a community of them who worked unbelievably hard and they're and law except for your book, I guess they're largely unheralded this group drastic that got together and yep. and, and the original uh, person who found this medical thesis, I think named seeker could so could you talk a little bit about about the, those people because I think that it's they're worth some time. Yeah, I think this is one of the most fascinating aspects of this, because uh, to put it bluntly, uh, Alina and I have done our best to find out what's gone on and we've found the mainstream media, with one or two honourable exceptions, not much use. We've found the scientific establishment not much help. Most, most scientists are not looking into this story. We found the intelligence agencies not much use. I mean, I had long chats with intelligence agents in the US, and they would say to me in breathless tones, stuff I knew already, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. as they sometimes do. You yeah, know? And yeah, that, that's yeah, exactly. fine. You know, it's what yeah. you expect. But, um, but uh, you know... It, but the the people who over <laughs> who, who over delivered, as it were, were these amateurs, and it's a very nice example of citizen science. Absolutely, uh, uh, the contribution that ordinary, talented, motivated uh, amateurs can make to scientific uh, work. We we do this in ornithology in the UK. That you know yeah. amateurs go out and collect data. On birds, SETI is another example, isn't it? That you know yeah. that people are helping to, etc. In principle, it's a make work project, but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, 
But in this case, it was more than that because these guys dug out stuff, you know, actual data, whether it was a thesis or a, a, a list of virus genomes or whatever. And it, it, I think it's worth just illustrating it with two of them. You mentioned the seeker. Um, mm -hmm. He's a young man in Bhubaneswar in India uh, who's been a science teacher, but he's not particularly science trained. Um, as he put it to us, I'm good at making search engines work for me. <laughs> yeah, <that was laughs> and uh, he got hold of logins for a Chinese database that stored academic theses. And he simply searched the database for um, any thesis that related to these kinds of topics. And he found not just this medical thesis about the treatment of the men in Wuhan, but, but a whole bunch of other theses, including uh, you know, one from 2018 that gave uh, enormous details about other viruses that they'd found, et cetera. Um, so that was an extraordinary piece of work. Then there's another, there's a Spaniard called Francisco de Ribera, um, who's a, really a technology consultant, a sort of business consultant, very smart, very numerate, um, out of a job at the start of the pandemic, nothing to do. So he just starts to accumulate a spreadsheet. And what he wants to put in this spreadsheet is the name, the serial number of every virus sample that the Wuhan Institute of Virology has ever collected. And he's gonna get them from published papers, but also from genome databases, eventually also from the Chinese genome databases when the seeker helped him get into those. Um, uh, and he's gonna to piece together where they found each virus. And then he's gonna work out um, what, uh, and, and what experiment they did with it. He calls it his big Sudoku. Um, and it was fantastically helpful. And just to give you a, an idea of how good, good it was, he estimated, that the Wuhan Institute of Virology scientists had collected 1,322 different virus samples from the uh, Mojiang site where the uh, bat guano shovelers had got infected. Uh, when six months later, an addendum to a nature paper was published, they said it was 1,322. <laughs> right, so he was out by two. Yeah. <laughs> and That's then he, I mean, he, he's at the moment, he's very interested in, in a question, which is a very simple one, which is when they actually grow a virus live in the lab, when they get one of these viruses to actually replicate in the lab, which isn't at all easy, uh -huh. they give it a different name. They call it WIV1, WIV2, and so mm -hmm. on. WIV1 and WIV16 are SARS-like viruses that they've managed to do this to, which are key parts of their experiments. And the other ones are not SARS-like, so they're not of interest. And there's one, WIV15, that he's been unable to find anything about at all. Ah. And he would just like to know. It might be completely irrelevant. It might not even be a coronavirus, for all yeah. we know. Yeah. But... Um, the, the analogy he gives is that when he was an auditor going through a company's accounts, if there's a series of invoices and there's a missing serial number, um, then ask for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ask for the one that's not there. Ask for the dog that doesn't bark in the night. Yeah. Um, you know, in that regard, there's sort of heroes, and, and I, I don't want to put it as villains, but there are people 
that don't come out. I will say in advance, China doesn't come out looking very well after after I read your book. I, I was, you know, I've always been concerned about China's control of information for many reasons. Uh, uh, maybe we'll get to it, but but boy, they don't come out very well in in the book. I have to say, even if it makes me sound, almost sound like Trump. Um, but uh, um, but there are also some scientists who don't, and and in my opinion, at least, and Peter Daszak is one who doesn't, who seems to be one who's been involved with the scientists in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, who at several times, either accidentally or intentionally, seem to give information that, that is incorrect or distracting or obviates uh, what would otherwise be important lines of investigation. And, and yep. maybe we'll talk about him, a little, but I wanna read this one paragraph because it really, it really, again, when I looked at smoking guns, I wrote smoking gun when I read, when it, so when you're talking about the the coronaviruses that that he had said had been left in the in the freezer in without and not known were there they'd actually been sequenced in 2017 and 2018 and it said when its sequence was found to closely match the sequence of the viruses causing COVID-19 the Wuhan scientists published it under a new name and failed to cite their own paper detailing its discovery or to reveal that they had been studying the virus over the past few years or to mention that it had come from a mine where there'd been a fatal outbreak of pneumonia. I mean, that's when you read that. <laughs> it's, it's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Um, yeah, it really is. And yeah. I don't know whether whether you want to talk about Peter Daszak at all in terms of the, throughout this, he's, a, he's someone who's been involved in trying to understand viruses and catalog them and involved in a program we'll maybe talk about called PREDICT, which some scientists thought was useless and and he didn't. And he's clearly been very good at getting funds. And 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 he was not only involved with the key scientists at at Wuhan Institute of Virology, but then was on later, I believe, on the WHO uh, committee that that was the first one to try and examine the sources of it. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's at least it appears that when you read it, that that there's a lot of obfuscation occurring when when he's questioned and and as 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 we'll yeah. get to he led to he he led the creation of a, that famous letter to science that said it's not a lab leak and so That's i don't want to well, actually but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um well ju- ju- i mean to start sort of right at the end um he was quoted in in a uh, article in um mit technology review this week as saying that um uh he wished people would give him a chance to respond to accusations. Mm-hmm. Well, we sent him um, something like 15 um, uh, summaries of what we were going to say about him in our book mm-hmm. and gave him uh, several weeks to get back to us and tell us if he wanted anything changed. And we got no response at all. Um, so it's not as if we haven't been trying to get his side of each story. Uh, mm-hmm. He just won't give it to us. And if you take that Lancet letter, mm-hmm. it appeared in February uh, 2020, and it said it could rule out a lab-based scenario for the origin of the virus. Um, his name appeared in alphabetical order. It had, uh, it had the statement, we have no conflicts of interest. He'd been working very closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology for many years Mm -hmm. and had funneled funds from the US government to them for their research. And he had actually orchestrated that letter. 
He had written to a bunch of scientists uh, on the 6th of February 2020 saying, I think we should send a letter to the Lancet uh, exonerating the laboratory. And uh, here's a draft. Would you all please agree to sign it? And he didn't, that came out later because of email leaks. Uh, the Lancet eventually had to put a, uh, a statement on saying, well, sorry, there are conflicts of interest here. We should have mentioned them. Many the pages start. of conflict. <laughs> yeah, they go on for about two pages. Um, so, and, and then worse, in August, September 2021, um, thanks to Drastic, uh, a document came into the public domain, which was a grant application by Peter Daszak with Xi Zhengli as a co-applicant, um, uh, requesting $14 million from DARPA, uh, part of the Department of Defense, to uh, do a series of studies on SARS-like viruses uh, in Wuhan. And uh, it included an unbelievably crucial piece of information, uh, which was that they would like to insert a furin cleavage site, which is this little bit of we'll genetic get, technology. We'll there. come back to that. Yeah, yeah, we're going to come back to that. Into a SARS-like virus. And, um, uh, and, and just, you know, this is nearly two years after the start of the pandemic, and he hasn't told us this useful piece of information that they had applied to do this, this experiment. Um, it does seem as if we aren't being given the information that we would need to solve this puzzle. Now, if the lab is innocent and Peter Daszak's work did not contribute to the start of this pandemic, then they ought to be rushing into the public domain with everything and anything they've got, yeah. because it would show that they couldn't possibly have done this. Instead of which information has to be got out by leaks and, and uh, freedom of information requests and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, you can see how painful it is for someone like Peter Daszak. He's devoted his career to tracking down wild viruses that might cause mm -hmm. pandemics. And the purpose of that research was to predict and prevent the next pandemic. It failed in that sense. They weren't mm -hmm. able to predict and prevent this one. And he's now possibly standing accused of worse than failure of having started one by mistake. Uh, and that, you know, is something that cognitively it must be very, very painful to confront. Yeah, I, I think that's the point I want to jump in, both for your sake and my sake. No one, I, neither you nor I would be suggesting any malicious intent here. It's just, Correct. you know, and it's it, it's very easy to understand how someone who who may firmly be convinced and, and has every reason and is for many reasons, he may know, and Dudley knows much more about the situation than you or I at this point in terms of what actually happened, but be convinced that there is no possibility that it's a lab leak and, yep. may, and may feel therefore that these efforts are just an intrusion and a distraction for what's being done. So, the, the, so he, he may have every good reason to say, I, I don't wanna waste time with these people who, I, who are down the wrong track, but you're right, yep. there, are a lot of, there are a lot of issues that, so you can understand the psychology. I think that's important without without yeah, ar without I, arguing I that there's some intent to uh, completely to hide anything. agree with that. But you know, back in March and April of 2020, I was not someone who was trying to get mm -hmm. Peter Dazak into trouble. I was someone who was trying to find out the story. 
over the subsequent two years, I've become someone who will find it very hard now to believe that he's telling me the whole truth um, uh, about something uh, until I can verify it for certain. Absolutely. Well, on the whole, that's a, not a bad policy anyway. But um, uh, <laughs> uh, well, let me let me throw in here, because as someone whose name appears once here and one hears a lot about it in terms of funneling American money to to Wuhan, um, Anthony Fauci, um, because, you know, when here is these, um, you know, Anthony Fauci is loved and hated in the United States at the same time and maybe around the world, as far as I know. Um, um, you don't talk about much about it, but some people are saying that he was funding, you know, the research that. Uh, so the the money that that was it true that the money that was going to be funneled to Wuhan came from the 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 organization that Anthony Fauci leads, right? I assume. Yes, a lot of it did. Um, the uh, the money that went from the U.S. taxpayer to fund research in Wuhan, some of it went through the Pentagon, uh, some of it went through USAID, and some of it went through the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, which is the organization that Anthony Fauci uh, heads. Um, a lot of it, a lot of the money will, of course, have come from the Chinese Academy of Sciences and other uh, Chinese government sources. So it's not as if uh, the, the Fauci is the main funder of research in Wuhan. I would never allege that. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that sense, for that reason, Alina and I are a bit reluctant to to uh, to, to make too much out of the role of Anthony Fauci because we think those these experiments would have happened with or without the U.S. funding. Mm -hmm. um, we also think he's probably right when he insists that no experiments were done that intended to increase the infectivity of viruses in Wuhan, even though we now know that experiments did dramatically increase the infectivity of viruses. Which another um, subject we'll get to. In the, in the uh, so, the, and, and that, that um, question of intent versus whether it yeah. happens is, is a sort of semantic yeah. one that Rand Paul and um, Anthony Fauci can argue about. And, and I particularly don't want to get terribly into that because I'm not an American. Uh, it's yeah. it's not my government. He's not my government's medical advisor. Um, Rand Paul is not my senator. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I yeah, don't have sure, a dog sure. in that hunt, yeah. as it were. And we mustn't get to the point where we take the pressure off the Chinese scientists by making it into too much of a U.S. political story. I agree. But that said, I do think there are serious questions to answer about um, the degree to which, uh, explicitly or not, Anthony Fauci discouraged anyone from investigating the lab leak prob no, properly, partly because uh, he knew that some funding had gone there and it wouldn't look good. Now, I'm not saying that's a sort of, as I said, consciously or unconsciously, yeah. right? you know, I'm talking about human nature. Here, yeah, not... sure, sure. May have felt, well, that's a, a one. Once again, if you're convinced it had no, was irrelevant, you don't want to distract people by focusing on it. So there can be, yeah. you know, the intent can be very good on everyone's parts, but there, but, you know, so more, Fa more Dazak than Fauci, uh, certainly if you're a reader comes out of this 
well with the impression i i just gave you and and um and 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 i think it's accurate. yes i think that's fair yeah um okay i want to before we get on and and we'll talk about everything from furon cleavage to to gain a function because i think those are important issues i i do i want to go you, you i love the part where you especially for someone like me you talk about the science of of viruses and bacteria and discovery of viruses which which are we and it's all these things are fascinating to me i've been lately thinking about the origins of life for other reasons and and um so you want to explain the difference between a, a, i'm coming back and focus there i am about a virus versus the bacteria yeah. <laughs> yes i mean basically a a bacterium is a very small uh, creature but a self-sufficient living creature a virus is not it's just a bunch of rogue genes hitched up in such a way that they can take over the machinery of another cell whether it's a human cell or a animal cell or a bacterium cell and um, uh, commandeer its machinery to make more copies of the virus. So it really is a digital thing. When we talk about uh, computer viruses, mm -hmm. and I think Richard Dawkins was the first person to really talk about them actually in some ways in the selfish gene, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, it's a surprisingly a surprisingly accurate metaphor. Um, they are both just digital devices for copying themselves. Um, and viruses are therefore much smaller than bacteria. Um, uh, as the, the way I put it is if a, you know if a malaria parasite is a is a um, dog, then a mm. bacterium is a no, you know is a cat, and a bacterium is a mouse and a virus is a flea, you know that very roughly the sort of scale it was useful for me I, I, I was used that analogy was used for me the, but, the... but of course the point is that you can't attack the machinery of a virus because it doesn't have a machinery that's why it's so difficult to develop antiviral drugs uh, the, the antiviral drugs we do have attack our own machinery which the virus is using but they do it in such a way that they don't quite kill us but they kill the virus more <laughs> It's fast. It's amazing to me. I'm I'm in awe of what modern biology can do in many ways. But that was it. That's a useful analogy. I want to ask you. Um, well, and it's peripheral, but it's an interesting scientific question to me. So, would you say a virus is alive? Yeah, this is a a, a very good question. The the general answer that pretty well everybody gives is you can't a, a virus is not alive because it can't replicate itself independently. I don't like that. I'd prefer to say it is alive. It's obviously a derivative of life. It's a part yeah. of life. It does replicate itself, albeit with the help of others. I think it's just a, a highly um, refined parasite. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me it just it replicates when it has a symbiotic relationship. I mean, maybe symbiotic isn't the right way to put it, but when it uses something else. But in that regard, also, I'm I, it, the the genome of viruses is RNA based, right? Not DNA based. Uh, well, th that's not true. Some of them are DNA-based and some of them are RNA-based. The coronavirus stranded and some of uh, viruses. Yeah. The coronavirus is, is the coronavirus is RNA. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Now and yeah. yeah, no. Okay. So that's oh, good. I'm glad. I didn't know it was that some of them were DNA-based too. Yeah. So the coronavirus is RNA-based, and that leads me to ask another peripheral question. I'm just interested in, in terms of uh, thinking about the origins of life. Many people talk about an RNA world. As, pre, as proceeding yes. in the DNA world, because for a variety of reasons, it's, it's DNA is very, it, it, it would be natural to imagine a process by which RNA preceded DNA. And since viruses are, are have their genome, or some of them have their genome based on, on RNA, is there any possibility or has anyone talked about the fact of viruses being 
being you know b before our cab i mean being precursors to to living yes. systems people do talk about that i don't find it very convincing because i can't see who they were parasitizing as it were you know yeah. they'd have needed someone else to do their replicating in or with um so i think it's more likely that they are derived you know that they are essentially the genes of bacteria and of animals that have gone rogue um and have turned into um parasites okay. um uh but it's i think there's quite a good argument I, I haven't looked at it recently to say that that's true of most of them but there are some that that may be derived directly from extinct life forms that precede archaea and that were self-sufficient but no longer are they're now parasites do you see what i mean yeah you know? of course i do but i mean i, it I can't me. quite think what the are what the evidence for that would be but yeah. um i i should have another have another look at it but there yeah are i don't know enough to know the evidence looking but at this it, and it's the minute i saw it's, it, it's a, actually you know uh, if you don't do it i should write a book about that next well we can maybe do one together but but i'd have to learn a lot but um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but I mean, it hit me when I thought, wow, an RNA, you know, when people talk about an RNA world and here's something with an RNA genome, it's sort of. Yeah, it, well, that, that is certainly intriguing, isn't it? That quite yeah. a lot of viruses have RNA genes. Yeah. Yeah, that's worth thinking about. We'll talk about it. But anyway. Um, and by the way, uh, RNA is less stable than DNA. Yes, of course. It's, it's tough to maintain a large RNA genome. 30,000 base pairs, which is the coronavirus genome, is about as big as you can get without having real problems. Uh, keeping it from uh, uh, collapsing into too much mutation. Yeah, no, in fact, that's what I'd always heard. And I didn't know the reasons why, but I had always heard that RNA was much less stable than DNA, and that was a problem. But uh, and, It's largely because it, it can't do those neat double helixes that stabilize it. That, exactly. Okay. That's that simple. That's a, almost a physics answer. I like that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's true. It might not be. But yeah. Anyway, anyway it's, it works for me. Um, <laughs> The okay, there's another thing that you mentioned, and it's a, somewhat of an aside, but I, I want to ask you because it's relevant now with Omicron, um, which wasn't around when you wrote the book, or at least it wasn't known as being around. Maybe it was, but um, you talk about uh, Paul Ewald and 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 his his um, a very interesting question about which whether deadly or milder viruses spread better. And you say Ewald argued that the motor transition. Um, indicates a trade-off between virulence and con contagion, which is clearly true. You don't want to kill everyone immediately. Otherwise, you can't, you can't get propagated. Well, yes, and but it, that's true for some modes of transmission and not others. That's exactly. The you say, and you say diseases sp spread by direct contract, contact and which cannot survive for long outside the body will evolve to be low in virulence so that the infected person remains as active as possible, interacting with a large number of people. When I read that, I, I mean, that I kind of that's something I kind of knew, but it suddenly hit me that um, does that a nat is, is therefore in some sense Omicron an example of what you might have naturally have expected this virus to do, which is to become more contagious but less virulent. Exactly that, and I, I'm I'm in a minority here. Most virologists and epidemiologists say this is nonsense. There's no evidence that diseases evolved to become uh, more. Uh, mild. Um, look at smallpox, that didn't do so. Look at polio or whatever. Um, and I say, but you're forgetting about the mode of transmission. Paul Ewald has this very, very crucial point. If, yeah. if, you, if you're spread by coughs and sneezes, it's quite different from if you're spread by insects, 
Well, actually, you want the guy lying delirious in a darkened room, yeah. not noticing the mosquitoes um, <laughs> yeah. before he dies, because yeah. yeah. <laughs> the mosquitoes are going to do the spreading. Um, and so I can't claim that this is definite scientific certainty, but I think Paul Ewald has made a very, very good point. There are 200 or so kinds of virus that cause the common cold, um, rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, coronaviruses mainly. And none of them kill you. Well, mm -hmm. not, not sorry. Most of them don't kill you. Yeah. yeah. Don't <laughs> um, kill most people. Let me put that <laughs> Don't kill most people. Exactly. <laughs> and that can't be a coincidence. You know, it does look like respiratory viruses don't stay lethal for long. Now, one thing that worries me about lockdown, and this is a point that uh, lockdown skeptics on the whole don't make, so it's a different one, um, is that it might have prevented the emergence of milder variants taking over. Why? Because in the first lockdown in particular, if you had a mild case, you were told to stay at home. Mm -hmm. If you had a severe case, you were told to go to the hospital where you infected healthcare workers who then yeah. passed it on to other people who took yeah. it to care homes and so on. So we were actually encouraging the nasty versions of the virus to spread more than we were encouraging the mild ones to spread. That's my worry. And I think it was only therefore once we sort of started opening up a bit that we could get Omicron evolving and, and coming along. Um, but other people say, well, the mildness of Omicron is all to do with the fact that we're boosted and injected. And that's yeah. certainly partly true. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the Australian, not, the South African uh, doctor who first discovered and characterized Omicron was insistent from the start that this is a milder virus. And she was, she was actually chastised for saying yeah. so, um, which is quite shocking, actually. You know, <laughs> the truth is what matters here. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to get Omicron I mean... before my booster fades, actually. Mm. I've not had it either. I've not done any, any version of it yet. Oh, really? And I, I think I don't want to wait another year and then, you know, my booster will have faded and then Omicron <laughs> might hit me quite badly. You know, so okay. we'll see. Well, you could get it. You could, I'm sure there are ways you could get Omicron. I I should, it's for full disclosure, point out that I have the, I, I not like, I have a lot of, a number of friends and my daughter and stepdaughter both got the Omicron, but I got the good old Alpha or whatever it was. I had, I had it early on. You're a macho and, man, and and then and then and then I had I mean I've had the booster I've had all three so I kind of anyway, but um, I haven't caught I did risk getting Omicron because I went to Arizona a few weeks ago but but didn't get it but uh, well, but I have had uh, friends who had it, it after the others as well if if I knew that friend A had Delta and friend B had Omicron, mm -hmm. I would see friend B but I wouldn't see friend A yeah moment. yeah yeah I can understand that in, in any case um okay. Um, I want to. I want to go back now. Um, I think those are interesting questions, and 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 a lot of them are open questions. But, but again, my first suspicion, similar to yours, when I saw Omicron, was, hey, this is great. This is great news. And instead of being, you know, the the press at the time was, oh my God, there's this new, yeah. and and I was really, well, you know, I I understand it's important, but I'm yep. of course it's also easier exactly. to sell papers and get clip, clicks if you make people afraid, but. <laughs> which unfortunately is a large part of things nowadays. But yeah. but uh, yeah, so anyway, um, I'm in favor of in some ways, well, I'm not in favor of people getting any anything, but 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 the but Om if Omicron can effectively take over, it's a good thing for the world, I think, personally. Um uh since it's here to stay, as far as I can tell. Um uh okay, but the 
the you you then spend time and and there's another group of not quite unheralded people but but this effort the the whistleblowers in wuhan and the people who really tried to get information out man in spite of an incredible crackdowns and and again it doesn't look good i think you say this somewhere else it does it just you can't infer things but it doesn't look good when the government says yes you have this information but you can't give it out Mm -hmm. and and um and that happened a lot in china as as the as the whole thing began to be involved and 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 you have um one thing what intrigued me was zhang this um in um dr zhang who who in January 5th, and again, it amazes me, within like two days after getting it, sequenced the full genome. But then uh, that was supposed to be sequestered or whatever the word is, or, or uh, uh, the, that embargoed. Embargoed, yeah. He sent it to and did a nature paper until, until July 12th. And if it hadn't been for various whistleblowers, it might have been embargoed. That doesn't. That amazed me that January 5th they had it, and obviously it's useful for the world. And you make the point that China didn't want it, probably didn't want it going out because they wanted to, it, it was, it was. Um, I don't know whether you'd say capitalism would work, but they wanted to, they wanted to uh, yeah. be able to have their own people develop test kits that would make a lot of money. And that that's an awful thing if true. And then- it, Well, yeah, I think it's it's important though to put it in the context of the time. I don't think in, January, uh, you know, early January of 2020, anyone realizes that we're talking about a global pandemic. Uh, you know, they're, they're expecting a, a little local difficulty in China, which will take a month or two to get under control. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, they've, they've kind of in that crony capitalist way that China has, they've handed the rights to develop the test to some company. And that's important to allow it to protect that. Uh, And he's a friend of the party boss or whatever, (laughs) that kind of thing is going on, I'm sure. But um, I I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of the early stuff needs to be seen in the context, you know, telling, telling that uh, ophthalmologist that he shouldn't be um, uh, talking about this virus, uh, punishing people for taking precautions Mm. and things like that, urging the World Health Organization to say it's not transmissible between humans, Uh uh, demanding that they don't declare an emergency. These things need to be seen in the context of nobody ex- yet expecting it to turn into a global issue. And they're not therefore expecting Westerners to pour over their decisions two years later. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I think they might have behaved a little differently. But I think it's a useful lesson that the, the danger of Correct. restricting it when you don't know, the, it's always better for science to give out the information if you don't know. And, and, and anytime exactly. you restrict information, it's you're. And it's not as if China had behaved properly over SARS that yeah. they got a they, you know Gro Harlan Brundtland the head of the World Health Organization tore a strip off the Chinese government in 2003 and said don't mm. you ever do this again when the, one of these things breaks out you tell us you tell us everything you know and you don't let us find out the hard way um, is, and but that, that's, what happened. Not what, yeah. and that's what happened exactly. yeah and in fact um but it also doesn't you know I'm not a big fan of nature <laughs> or science now and I published in both to be honest in the past but but um, it doesn't reflect well on them. I mean, this embargo—the fact that they had they had a, a, a submission with the, the the sequence—and again, because of 
probably publication issues did not make a point of letting people know they had it either yes um the 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 um it, it it's a question of when you when you submit a paper to nature about a new virus and you say you've sequenced the genome you have to deposit that genome not with nature but with one of the international genome databases yeah, yeah. Um, and it was the, the the deposit in the genome database that was embargoed till the following july yeah until dr ed holmes in australia stepped in and persuaded dr zhang to send it um to a, a blog site actually <laughs> so that it could be published um uh so uh, yeah somebody it, it ended up wasting only a week but it but could have been longer it could have been longer and that you know as soon as it was available in the west moderna starts work on its messenger rna vaccine and within a day so you know every day does count at that stage and it, it wasn't right for nature magazine to be part of a publishing of a paper that did not um uh, insist that this was made available immediately just as it was not right for nature to publish that paper without letting them say where they'd found that other bat virus that we talked about earlier yeah yeah, yeah. so nature has some very serious questions to answer here i i, I don't think um they have behaved well and you have to remember that the model of publishing that um, they have is is a significant chinese investment in exchange for waiving the fees of chinese scientists who publish in nature at least to some extent yeah. i don't yeah. know quite how far it goes um so the, there is a, a conflict of interest that needs to be looked at in the scientific publishing world in my view uh, i'll you know I, I don't want to be unfair to anyone but i think it, it's not unreasonable to ask um how that might affect the way people talk about things yeah no i think it's uh, it's right well i'm in a in i'm happy to say in physics that, that which spearheaded this the archive um that you yes. know it used to be we depended on journals or at least a lot of people around the world depended upon journals for information a lot of scientists and that that hurt people in the third world because they wouldn't get preprints from you know, when I was at Harvard, that we'd send out our preprints to a few select paper groups of people who'd have the who'd have access to our papers well before they were published. And now, um, in the physics world, basically, you submit to an archive, and the the journals are just for archival purposes. But the but where you go to look for the new research is not in a journal, but it's all there. The you know the day the paper comes out, whether well before it's been published or even accepted. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, in any case, I want to, there's, there's so many things I could do, but I want to jump ahead because I, I don't want to spend 10 hours on this, but um, what is intriguing is the red herrings, the seafood market, which is essentially, the more one learns about it, you know, as an outsider, I, I'll say, I think it's important, I try to step back, and as an outsider, there are two things that, that um, hit me right away. One was, the question that everyone still, you know, still asks them since why Wuhan? I mean, you know, it, it is interesting that, it, you know, it occurred to me, oh, it's unfortunate that it occurred in the same place that they have a major institute of virology, but it yeah. is interesting. And, and I thought, oh, poor bad luck. Or, and then, but then the seafood market, everyone was told right away, the seafood market, it's the seafood market. And then, and then um, uh, that was promoted as by, by, the, by a variety of sci scientific groups as the origin of this as the likely still is, or, still is being 
Yeah. And and as far as I know, there's zero evidence of that, right? In fact, negative evidence in the sense well, that there's I... no, there's not, let me put it this way. There's never been a sample. There was never a sample from the market taken with uh, any, any, uh, any virus, any SARS virus, right? Is that right? No, well, that's not quite right because um, <clears throat> there was no food sample or animal sample from the market that had the virus in it. There were signs of the virus on what they call environmental samples, which is door tops, I mean, doorknobs, countertops, sewage, and things like that. Um, but they look like the human virus. They don't look like, as it were, a 99% cousin that might have been in a, an animal. Uh, so yeah, no, the, the, they expected to find, as they had found in the case of SARS, uh, in, mainly in civet cats, infected animals, infected people, people with antibodies who'd shown signs of previous infection, all these things were missing. Um, and uh, the, there wasn't, uh, the, 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 there weren't that many animal stalls in the market, there's only about 10. Um, and the, there was no association of those environmental samples with those 10 stalls. Now, since then, a very important paper has emerged, which we do talk about in the book, uh, which was held up in peer review for a ridiculously long time. Um, which basically describes a coincidental sampling of uh, what, how much wildlife trade there was in that and other Wuhan markets up until 2019. And it finds that there were live mammals for sale in that market, which the World Health Organization was told there weren't. Um, so it's clear that in sampling the market, the Chinese scientists missed something. Mm -hmm. didn't find all the animals that were for sale. And it's possible that one of those was infected. But, you know, <laughs> we still don't know that for sure. And as you say, there is no direct evidence implicating the market. Some of the early cases were associated with the market. There was a big row about a month ago, about uh, or a couple of months ago, about a, um, the difference between a case on the 8th of December and the 10th of December. And the 8th of December guy, had no, he was an accountant. He had no connection with the Huanan seafood market. Um, uh, but Dr. Michael Warraby uh, then said, um, hang on, he didn't go to hospital for pneumonia that day. He went for a dental problem. Mm -hmm. um, and that turned out not to be right. It was his son who went for the dental problem, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, so anyway, he, if he didn't get it for another few days, then the first case is indeed the 10th of December, and that was a shrimp seller in the market. But shrimp sellers don't sell, you know, civet cats and yeah, bamboo rats. Shrimp, it's a rule. Um, shrimp, the word is in the, you know, and there's no way this is a shrimp virus. Um, so it doesn't really help us. And anyway, nobody thinks 8th or 10th of December is the first case. Everybody yeah. thinks there will have been cases earlier. And in fact, the Chinese have got evidence of cases going back to the 17th of November. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, without good information on the index cases, we can't be sure how strong the association with the market is. And it looks like the market was a super spreader event where... Yeah. You know, the shrimp seller gave it to a bunch of people and in they fact, gave it to well, other people. In fact, what I meant by negative evidence, and I think you sort of say this indirectly, and I think Alina did in their paper that the fact there was no evidence in the market, except for the fact that there might be env environmental evidence and might suggest that it came from humans and it was already well, well adapted to humans at that point, 
which you might think might be a smoking gun that that that, that it came yeah, from I, humans I, were associated I think with. Pretty well, everybody um, thinks that if even if someone brought it to the market um, themselves in an animal or in themselves that it had already been spreading a bit by then somewhere, yeah. whether it's in a lab or in a market, a different market or, or somewhere else. Yeah. The, the, the market is not the very, very origin of, of it. It's an early uh, amplifier of it. Not pretty well everybody, mm. but a lot of people think that. Okay, and then, then I don't want to spend a lot of time, but there, you talk about the pangolin papers, a lot of papers on pangolins, <clears throat> and you make this statement, and, and, and some of us who might have been following would hear about the potential of, and I didn't even know what a pangolin was before I read, <laughs> before I read your book, but, um, but uh, that, and, and your point was that I think that there are a lot of papers and uh, claiming that there are SARS like viruses and pangolins. And I think y your point there is that that was another red herring because it gives the impression because people didn't reference things properly. It makes it look like it's much more prevalent in pangolins than it is. I think you say Correct. because the That's world exactly. received the impression that the SARS coronavirus infection in pangolins is a common phenomenon, which makes the event of a human ca catching the virus from pangolins more probable. And and the point is that that was just not the case, that people were over-reporting or, or selecting the rare cases rather than the average cases. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, as far as we can tell, there's only a handful of pangolins infected. They all came from one uh, intercepted, smuggled batch. Um, they didn't have a 99% similar virus, as was announced in the first press conference. They had a 90%. Well, mm -hmm. that's nothing like close enough to explain yeah. it. And there were no pangolins for sale in the uh, in Wuhan. Of that, we're pretty sure, because that that study of illegal wildlife sales that was going on was looking at all illegal animals and they never found a pangolin. Yeah. So, um, uh, so, and, and Alina found that the papers that were rushed out after that press conference, four different papers, all pointing at the pangolins, had all sorts of methodological and other issues with them that really meant they needed to be heavily corrected. And they have been, you know, some lengthy, corrections have been printed to those papers thanks to her work so um pangolins are a red herring we're pretty certain of that mind you it's curious how a pangolin did pick up a SARS-like coronavirus of yeah. some kind yeah uh, while being smuggled in southern China um, they picked up a bunch of other viruses they're very vulnerable in captivity to getting viruses it seems um but quite where they got them from we don't know yeah, no, it's yeah. Again, an interesting question. But if you want to do the science right, you got to do the science right. Um, and okay, now I I want to I yeah I want to move on to some interesting questions relating to lab leak and function. I I did want to mention I did I I found this predict. I wanted to talk a little bit about predict and and um and this large scale project, which was really I mean on the surface it sounds uh interesting and potentially useful which is the idea was if if and, and this is where peter dazak was involved and got a lot of money to do was to basically look at as many viruses as as could be a, a, a taken from the nature and explore them and try and in some sense by cataloging them and maybe understanding and maybe enhancing their function but cataloging them initially to try and understand what might be the biggest threat to humans and at the same time, it was rather interesting that there were a lot of scientists who are saying, 
that's useless because it won't give you any useful info. You know, you won't be able to predict anything. Mm. So do you want to you want to talk about that for a few minutes? Yeah, no, it's it's a very interesting debate. I mean, right up until 2018, you're having you're seeing these arguments in the scientific literature between two sides of an argument. One saying, "Look, uh, the, you know, this is the most important thing we can do to prevent the next pandemics. To go out there, sample all the viruses in the world." Uh, it was originally called Predict. It, the the mm. daughter is now called the Global Virome Project, and uh, to get a catalogue of every virus with pandemic potential in a bat in southern China, but also elsewhere in the world and in other animal species, um, with the idea that, that we can sort of rank them and say, this one's potentially dangerous because it does seem to be able to infect human cells in the lab. This one isn't dangerous. Um, and uh, therefore... Uh, let's try and eventually develop a vaccine against the ones that might cause pandemics so that we're ready for it when it comes. And other scientists respond by saying, you know, good virologists say, I don't think this is a good use of money at all. I think what you should be doing is having good surveillance in rural areas where people come into contact with wildlife so you can pick up a virus very early when it's starting to infect human beings. And then you can... Uh, characterize it very quickly as we can now um, and uh, start to uh, develop strategies for uh, preventing it turning into a pandemic. In other words, um, you know, stop looking for potential fires, but look very carefully for real fires. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. For so small, you, you, real you fires. get this, this big disagreement and you get Peter Daszak in particular sort of furiously saying, no, no, you don't understand. We're doing incredible work and it's very exciting. And to some extent, I think they got carried away with the doing incredible work, um, you know, that they were, and they were doing spectacular work. You know, the, the fact that you could not just sequence these viruses, you could then manipulate the sequences, you could insert parts of the spike gene of one that you couldn't grow into one that you could grow, and that way you could test how dangerous its spike was without actually growing it. You know, these were clever techniques, and but they got a bit carried away with them without really thinking whether there was any chance they were prevent a pandemic and, and you know the the, the so-called diffuse proposal to darpa is a pretty extreme example of this i mean you know they're talking about developing an app on a phone for soldiers fighting in wars so that they know when they're in an area with a dangerous virus in it yeah um or they're talking about spraying a vaccine into a cave to immunize bats against a virus you know <laughs> Yeah, these are pretty far-fetched ways of spending taxpayers' money, frankly. Well, if you've ever seen DARPA proposals, they're off. I was in one. I was once involved in okay. in, in 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 evaluating them. Um, they're a lot wilder ones because that's the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> they they you know they basically say here's a for us it's nothing. Forty million dollars in the defense budget is nothing. Let's just you know let any cra person come up with any crazy idea because maybe one of the crazy ideas is useful but it's but they're crazy yeah th ones. that's darpa's job you're quite yeah, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh boy yeah when fit when it came to physics ones there were some wild ones um the um one of the things you point out because we're now i want to now sort of go through the things which more or less and on why my mind all give kind of smoking guns about the potential of a lab leak but you make a really important point that is that there is a big difference between this SARS outbreak and other lab leaks. And, and so if you're if it's worthwhile stepping back and saying there have been lab leaks of, of viruses and and there are differences here. So maybe you want to go to be fair, you want to go through them. 
Yeah, um, most uh, lab leaks have not resulted in epidemics. Um, uh, the one exception that we know about is the 1977 flu epidemic that went around the world, which we were pretty sure came from a um, uh, failed vaccine, I mean, a, a faulty vaccine, a not quite a um, killed vaccine. Um, uh, but other ones tend to cause local outbreaks and tend to uh, peter out. So in the case of SARS, after the epidemic was over, and so there's no SARS circulating in hu human population, and therefore you can tell that, you know, when it breaks out in a lab, that it's come from the lab and not from the community. Mm. Um, we know of probably six cases, uh, one in Singapore, one in Taiwan, and four in Beijing, where people got infected. Um, and we don't actually know how they got infected in all but one of those. Um, all we know is that someone working on SARS in a lab ended up mm. catching SARS. Mm -hmm. They didn't drop a flask or puncture their gloves or, mm. or whatever. Um, so uh, these kind of lab leaks do happen on quite a significant scale because there's so many labs working on dangerous viruses and mm -hmm. other pathogens around the world. Um, but uh, they don't generally lead to pandemics. Uh, and that is the big difference. Uh, if this was if this was a lab leak, it has led to a global pandemic, and that would be a, pretty well a first, apart Perfect. from that 1977 case. Okay, well, let's lock, talk about some of the things that are of concern. So, some of which I'd heard of in in, in reading, and and it was, I learned a lot more about it in your book. But the first thing, which again, if you're standing back sounds like a crazy thing but it but i think it's worth pointing out why people do it and that's this gain of function research yep. so the idea yep. is you want to take something that that isn't particularly dangerous and make it something that is pretty effective at infecting humans and you might say why on earth would you want to do that and that that and the important thing was the question was was that research being done and as you pointed out there was it is there was at least well there was that research being done not necessarily on sars viruses but but there was that proposal to do to do that very thing in some sense in and so well no it's 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 not quite that i mean we the, the experiments that ben who and his colleagues did part of which they published in 2017 but we later had leaked documents showing more details of, of the, that series of experiments did include experiments in which they took the part of the spike gene of a newly discovered virus inserted it into a virus that they could grow in the lab, a live virus, WIV1 or WIV16, they were called. Um, uh, so you're swapping the, the, the key part of the genome of this newly discovered virus into one that you can grow. And you're then challenging human cells uh, derived from human airways mm -hmm. uh, in the lab or humanized mice with mm -hmm. this virus. That's to say a mouse with a human gene, gene in it. And... The effect was, in some cases, up to 10,000 times greater transmissibility of the virus, and in other cases, up to three or four times greater lethality to the mouse. Mm -hmm. um, so these were significant gains of function. In other words, the experiment made WIV-1 or WIV-16 mm -hmm. into a more dangerous virus because it had been given a different spike gene that was more dangerous. Sure. Sure. So there's no question that those are gain-of-function uh, experiments. Now, the purpose of them was to say, yeah. how dangerous is this spike gene that we've just discovered? 
Is it very dangerous or not at all dangerous? And the experiment answers that question. And if you go back to the very first gain of function experiments that set off the whole debate about this topic about 10 years ago, um, it involves influenza viruses that are infecting birds. And the question is, can this virus be made, be altered so that it infects mammals? Can we mutate it, give it to a ferret, and then have that ferret infect another ferret the other side of the room? Mm -hmm. And the answer in both of those experiments, which basically did that similar experiment, uh, was that yes, it could, to which a lot of other scientists uh, ran up the alarm bells and said, hang on, should you really be changing a bird virus into a mammal virus um, so that it's more likely to infect human beings, even under very careful and strict conditions? Uh, and that's, you know, there was a big argument about that. Dr. Fauci said, yes, you should. It's important we understand these things. And others saying, no, you're looking for a gas leak with a lighted match. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the point. I mean, for the, to the again, to the, I don't want to use the word layperson, but so when you first hear about it, you say, Gee, that's crazy. But then you realize, hey, there, 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 there are rational reasons for trying to understand in advance how dangerous something will be. So, so at least, I mean, I think when the reason I want to stress this is when people hear about gain of function, I think the first thing they think about is weaponizing. Yes, and and and, and it's really important to realize that no, that's, that's not the purpose behind no, it. No, no, I we don't think that anyone that we've any experiment that we've come across in wuhan uh, was done with the intention of making something more dangerous so that it could be used as a bioweapon uh, that's we've what seen I wanted no to evidence for that and yeah. we think they'd be very unlikely to do that in a civilian lab in the middle of a city and all that kind of thing exactly and i wanted to stress that because when because i you know when you talk about gain of function the natural thing some people are going to jump at is hey they're weaponizing and and of course you hear that and, and it's important to discount that, I think, uh, uh, as much as to say, yes, at the same time, A, there were scientists who questioned it, and B, this kind of thing was being done. So maybe, you know, if you had a virus that wasn't so uh, effective in humans and you were doing some gain-of-function experiments and somehow there was a leak, it might not be too surprising that it could come Correct. from that facility. That's, a, that's what I call, I guess, it clearly makes it a smoking gun. The next smoking gun was one I read of independently, I think because I... I involved even then at the for the Bolton the atomic scientists which had published an article on it um but yes. I, I and it and it came i mean the first i i i knew david baltimore and when i heard about this furin cleavage site which i had no idea what furin or cleavage or site was at the time but <laughs> but but um um that that's a problem and i think it's worth discussing it it's a technical issue but i think it's very interesting uh, anyway, it's a very interesting bit of science, and it's important to realize it. Well, so when I think it was, I do think it was the fact that David Baltimore raised this, at least in an article that someone was reporting on, that caused a lot of people to stand up and take notice and say, for me, it was the first time I began to think, hey, maybe th there's a lab leak. So why don't, why don't you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah, well, you're right. David Baltimore is, is, a, is an extraordinarily talented scientist, and he doesn't uh, throw out um, speculations lightly. A furin cleavage site is a feature in a virus genome in the middle of a spike gene that enables the virus to get its protein reshaped using an enzyme that's already in lots of human cells called furin. And this makes, this primes the virus to be more infectious. And 
SARS-CoV-2 has a furin cleavage site in it, as do other viruses. And this is why SARS-CoV-2 can mount a pandemic, because it makes it much more transmissible. It can infect many more tissues in the body and it can spread much more easily. So uh, the fact that this virus has a furin cleavage site is interesting. It's particularly interesting because no SARS-like virus has ever been found with one. Other coronaviruses have one, but they are pretty distant relatives. You know, I mean, they're like sort of, um, you know, antelopes are to, to horses. You know, they're, they're, uh, the, yeah. there's an analogy here which I'm working towards, which is Alina's, which is that the furin cleavage site is like a horn on a horse. Mm -hmm. It's... Uh, the fact that there are horns on antelopes doesn't tell you very much. Finding mm -hmm. a horn on a horse is very unusual. A <laughs> yeah. horn on a horse is, is about as rare as a furin cleavage site in a SARS-like virus, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we'll <laughs> but, come back to unicorns in a bit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but when you know that putting horns on horses, putting uh, furin cleavage sites into viruses was a frequent experiment done, as far as we can count at least 11 times around the world in the last 10 years in order to make them easier to grow in the laboratory. And often these experiments weren't done with whole viruses. They were done with parts of viruses or with so-called pseudoviruses that, are, that can't replicate, etc. So they were totally safe experiments. But sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they used whole viruses. That did happen. It happened with a uh, two coronaviruses in Wuhan that we know of. One was uh, a, 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 a collaboration between Wuhan and uh, uh, Rotterdam or Utrecht, I can't remember which, in the Netherlands, uh, to put a furin cleavage site into a pig coronavirus. And the other was at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and it was to put a furin cleavage site into a MERS-like virus. MERS being Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, a particularly lethal coronavirus. Not a sensible experiment to be doing, in our mm -hmm. view, at all, because mm -hmm. it's a very dangerous virus. You don't want to make it more dangerous. Um, it, it wasn't MERS they were working on. It was a MERS-like virus to see whether, if you made it more like MERS, it would be infectious. Yeah. And then we find... And not until the late 2021, that there was actually a plan to put one into a SARS-like coronavirus, and that Wuhan Institute of Virology was part of the that plan. Um, although it's hard to tell from the application whether the experiment was going to be done in North Carolina or Wuhan, but uh, you know the point is they were contemplating putting a unicorn on a horse. Yeah, and a unicorn. Uh, sorry, a horn on a horse, and a unicorn has turned up in Wuhan. Yeah, exactly. Now, there's one other aspect of this, which is, which I think is the thing that intrigued Baltimore. It's not just at the furin cleavage site; it's that it was CGG. Yes. Uh, now, the point being that that there <laughs> that there are different ways that RNA uh, RNA three sets of of letters are used to code to produce uh, uh, amino, amino acids, acids. and yeah. and. And there are different. There's redundancy, so different sets of letters will produce yep. the same amino acids. But CGG, which is repeated twice in this furin cleavage site, as I think Baltimore pointed out, is something you see from human. Well, why don't you say it? You'll, yeah. you'll say yeah. it more presently so than I will. If if you want to uh, specify arginine, which is one of the amino acids in a protein sequence, mm -hmm. then there are 
several codes you can use. I can't remember codons. Uh, can't remember whether it's four or six, but I, I think it's six actually. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, one of them is CGG. But viruses very, very rarely use CGG for arginine. They use one of the other codons for some reason. And nowhere in SARS-CoV-2's genome where it wants to do arginine does it use CGG. Human cells, on the other hand, do use CGG very often. It's the commonest of the codons for arginine. Um, now, when you insert a sequence into a virus, you sometimes humanize it. That is to say, you use codons that are more likely to attract the attention of a human enzyme. So you, you actually deliberately don't use the same dictionary that the virus is using. You're using a slightly more human dictionary. Mm -hmm. uh, this was known, it, it, it's called uh, codon optimization. And the furin cleavage site has two inserted arginines in sequence. RR is the, mm. the abbreviation. Mm. And they are both CGG. Mm -hmm. So to find a CGG doublet in a SARS-like virus is highly unusual, to say the least. Um, and because, in, and slightly hints that maybe it was put there deliberately. That's what David Baltimore was saying. Mm -hmm. Now, not everybody finds that convincing. Uh, Christian Anderson has made some quite good arguments about how, actually, if you're mutating to get to CGG, then you... And you start with CGA, it's not difficult to end up with yeah. CGG, etc. Um, and so I, I don't, neither Alina nor I want to place too much emphasis on that argument, yeah. but it is yet another small hint that this doesn't look natural. And that's what some of the scientists were saying to each other right at the start is we've looked at the genome and there are bits of it that don't look natural. Yeah, and I think, you know, whether or not, yeah, and you're right, there are important things. To, it's important to point out that other people have diff differing views, but since it gained a lot of attention, I wanted to, I wanted to mention that. At yeah, least yeah, it's, been no, it's, it's, it's great yeah. to have been able to get into that topic because that one is usually a little too complicated for most podcasts, but oh, good no. for you. There we go. Okay. I, do <laughs> and I probably more. didn't explain it very well. No, no, you did. No, no. And I think it's important. No, I, these are important issues. And I think people, you know, I, I, my own feeling is that people can understand, yeah, I'm confident if properly explained, people can understand lots of things. And the significance of that, I think, is important. Well, uh, I'm sure that you are from the same school of science writing as me, which is that actually leaving stuff out to help the reader understand things doesn't work. Yeah, um, it doesn't work. And you know what? And 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 appealing to authority is not, doesn't work. But actually correct. explaining it, you know, some readers can always, you know, my feeling is that readers can just skip over it if they don't want to read it. Yeah, and that's exactly. fine. But exactly. other people do. Yeah. But but here's the more interesting, the reason I mentioned, I want to get in the Furon site, wow, there's lots of reasons, and maybe CGG, it's what is surprising is, you've already pointed out it's a unicorn, yet, in the paper, in the paper where she at all, you know, sequence, discuss the genome sequence, they don't somehow, I mean, it's the most, you'd think seeing a unicorn would be the one thing you'd comment on, and it is very surprising that the, that the head of that lab who was working on these things when they sequenced um, that genome did not mention the furin cleavage site. So, so you want to talk about that? Yeah, um, and worse than that, they had a diagram 
of the first half of the spike gene. <clears throat> and it showed the sequence, comparing it with other bat coronavirus sequences. And it stops just before you get to the furin cleavage site. Now, that's immediately upstream of, the, of where the split happens when furin goes to work, the so-called. Mm. So that's, that's the end of the first half is the split of, of the genome, of the gene, sorry. Um, and so the logical thing would be to end there just after the furin cleavage site, not just mm. before the furin cleavage site. It also typographically, in terms of that page of the Nature paper, also makes sense because actually there is space for it to end there. <laughs> <laughs> there's a white space in the diagram. So there's a deliberate decision has been taken to truncate that sequence just before it gets to the furin cleavage site. Now, why that should be, we can't speculate, obviously. Yeah, we don't but it's... know, but it it's it it's it is most peculiar to to find a unicorn and not, and, and as Alina puts it, to describe yeah. the details of the hooves of the horses, yeah. but not the horn. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's the dog that doesn't bark in the night, uh, yeah. as you know Sherlock Holmes put it. Yes. Um, uh, and and they, you know, it wasn't just that paper. They published another paper a couple of days later, and they didn't mention it there either. And they yeah. could have done. Yeah, so, I found that it's shocking. Hard for me to believe that they didn't spot it. Um, uh, it's much more much more easy for me to believe that they did spot it and didn't particularly want to draw attention to it, perhaps for reasonable reasons, yeah. you know, that they it hadn't understood want... the significance of it. Or, or again, they might want to go, again, they might not have wanted to lead to... This is to what we what, would what... love to sit down with Xi Jingli and ask her. Yeah, that's a, yeah. well, that's good. I'm glad you would. Um, well, look, I, I want to get close to wrapping it up. Um, uh, this has been fascinating for me, but... Um, uh, well, we, I still have a little more, but I, what I particularly liked was the last, was I was thinking in those terms and you guys explicitly said it. You basically say near the end of the book, okay, let's, this is a court case. We're going to be a lawyer for the process, you know, right. for the prosecution, one foot defense. There's people, you know, will present the case for, for spillover from some animal or, you know, zoonosis and, and, and we'll present the case for the lab leak. And, and I, and I and I and I and I don't want I don't think we need to go over it because I think we've already sort of gone over a lot of the issues that 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 you raise anyway and and the listener in some sense can can yeah um, but can I just say one thing about those sure, two chapters where, where we hand hand the microphone as it were to the defense lawyer yeah, and the prosecution yeah. lawyer um, and uh, the, the 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 thing I wanted to say is that when I read one of those chapters I find it quite convincing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> me too. Which, and that's true of both of them. I yeah, mean, I, I come out of reading the, the, the chapter saying it's not a lab leak and think, yeah, that's quite persuasive. And then I read the other one and I find that quite so too, well, which is the way it should be in a it's, court, as it yeah, were, exactly, if the lawyers are doing exactly. their job well and if yeah. the case is evenly balanced. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> so exactly. We, we find it, it very unfair when reviewers or critics say our book is just a long... Um, uh, attempt to prove the lab leak. We don't think we do that at all. We think no. we give both sides the thing. And at the end, we make it pretty clear that we think it's more likely that it's a lab leak, but only just, and we don't have any definitive evidence either way. Yeah, no, I'm glad to say uh, that I never read a single review of the book. Uh, so, um, uh, which is which is fine. I went. To, I thought it's the best to, best to read the book. And uh, well, I, all, all I'll say is that some people seem to review books without reading them. Oh but, yes, oh yes. And some be. I, listen, I've written a book, uh, "The Universe of Nothing," which a lot of people like to criticize my definition of nothing without ever having actually 
read what I say, but instead of what people say, I say. So I'm, I'm very aware of that. Um, yeah. But uh, but there is one thing that I mentioned briefly, you know, and in, in presenting both sides, there is the one elephant in the room, if you wish, which is this Humphrey Bogart line of all the gin joints in the world. And and it is interesting that when the that if you're thinking it comes from bats, the bats are 1,800 kilometers away, and somehow the virus first appears in Wuhan, the one place which has taken those viruses in, worked on them, sequenced them, studied them, changed some things, and it, you know it is it, you can't help. It would be unfair not to at least. I mean that's a real fact. Yeah, and and, and just to give a parallel, uh, in 2007 there was a an outbreak of foot and mouth disease on a farm in southern England uh, at a place called Purbright, 13 miles from the world's leading reference laboratory for foot and mouth diseases, viruses. That was not a coincidence. It immediately <laughs> became clear that there was a leaking pipe at the lab. The contractor had mended the pipe, had gone straight to the farm to mend a pipe there, and had infected the animals. So it's about as extreme in this case the coincidence you know yeah, there are amazing. thousands of cities in china many of them have much bigger markets much bigger wildlife sales you know wildlife mm. markets are a feature of canton of guangdong yeah. southern china not so much of northern china or central china there are there are thousands of chinese cities where this virus could have broken out either because they're closer to where the bats live yeah. or because they have more wildlife trade or or, or they've got more communication networks with others. The only thing that makes Wuhan stand out is that it has the world's leading laboratory for studying SARS-like coronaviruses. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think you make a point. Okay, so having said that, I, I think it is interesting that you do point out a difference in the court case or after the court case. You point out that people, for some reason, have a difference of uh, attitude about burdens of proof, that somehow... The presumption is it's zoonosis. The presumption is that it comes from some animal, and you have to, and the burden on you to, is to prove it comes from the lab. Yeah. But in advance, you say, well, no. I mean, the burden of proof is uh, we don't know where it came from, and therefore exactly. there should be a, it should be it shouldn't be so asymmetric. Yeah. So I think it's I, I think it's quite wrong to give the lab the benefit of the doubt to yeah. put it another way. Um, and uh, the, the the problem is because. The, the amount of secrecy we're dealing with, which we wouldn't be dealing with in the West, you know, we weren't dealing with it in the case of Burbright, you know, and foot and mouth. Um, the, the, the secrecy uh, then exonerates the lab if you regard it as innocent until proven guilty, whereas the market is guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. That doesn't feel fair to me. Uh, in yeah. this case, I, I think you should treat e each of those possibilities as... Um, equally likely to start with until you understand uh, where the evidence is pointing you. And I think you, and I'm surprised by the reviewer because I think you say that and then make it quite clear, both remain possible. You say it explicitly and openly. Yeah. It's true. I, I mean, there are lots of smoking guns and we've, I've tried to go through a number of them in the time can and but but both remain possible and we'll get, I want to get to your personal view at the end, but I, I want to say, people may say why why worry about this? Why are we having this discussion? And yeah. I think you make a, a key point. Well, two key points, I think. One is uh, we now know that pandemics, it's obvious that pandemics are possible. And, and, um, and understanding the origin of this particular one can do nothing but help us understand 
future possible pandemics, but also the damage to science that's being done by hiding information. Is, and, and, and this is a clear example of how hiding or distorting information hurts science, which can therefore hurt the public. And therefore, it's, it's a, a vitally important to understand this. We need to understand this because not just because we were curious, but because it, it will reveal a lot about not just this pandemic, but but where we may have missed and et cetera, et cetera. So maybe I could give you a chance. Yeah, to talk. no, I, and uh, you know, remember, I'm going back to what we started talking about a couple of hours ago. I'm a big fan of science. I think it's humanity's greatest achievement bar none. I, yeah. I don't want to see science um, uh, constrained or prevented or diminished. Uh, um, I'm a big fan of biotechnology. I think it has enormous mm. potential to help in both medicine and agriculture. Um, so uh, th that's all the more reason why, if something's gone wrong as a result of a scientific experiment here, scientists should be the ones investigating, desperate to find out, and quick to hold out their hands and say, um, uh, we need to change our procedures and not do the some kinds of research in order to be able to go on doing other kinds of research. Because otherwise, if they just say, no, no, it was nothing to do with us, nothing to do with us, mm -hmm. then and it eventually emerges that it was something to do with them, then the whole of science gets tainted by exactly. this. And lots of, you know, people who are working on other, you know, working on aging or, you know, something else will suddenly find their labs are harder to run. And I'm astonished, you know, going back to my libertarianism, I'm astonished by some of the libertarian lines coming out of scientists. Leave us alone. Don't mm -hmm. overregulate us. We know what we're doing. Trust us. You, you know, um, I mean, they sound like some of these guys who are going to hole up in the mountains in Montana with an AK-47. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I exaggerate, and, but, and, but I think do you know what I mean. Look, you know, yeah, no, I think they they could take a valuable lesson from Richard Nixon that that the cover up <laughs> is is that's, is worse that's than the... a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, let me let me let me give you the last word in that regard, and then I just want to ask about a personal question one or two at the end. The last I want to read the last paragraph of your book because I think it's important. If another pandemic of ambiguous origin occurs in the next decade, and you, whether it's SARS-CoV-3 or MERS-CoV-2 or influenza or whatever, then unless we learn key lessons from this pandemic, we will make the same mistakes. The world shows little sign yet of either finally shutting down the wildlife trade or addressing the risks of the burgeoning pathogen research worldwide, let alone both. There is little progress, if any, of governments designing a better system to encourage whistleblowers or transparency in science, public health and global pathogen surveillance. Rather than the reverse, honest discussions among leaders and scientists appear to be happen happening increasingly on burner phones and in secure email channels. We can but hope, like Shakespeare's Launcelot in The Merchant of Venice, that, quote, at length, truth will win out. And I find that incredibly important. And, and, it, and, and it's a real reason for, 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 um, for, for the wonderful description and detective story that you describe in the book that I, that I love. Thank and you so very, very much. It's, it's really nice to have someone of your... Uh, um, experience and standing to, to say nice things about our book. I really appreciate that. Oh, no worries. Well, it's well deserved. But let me just end with a few things. Uh, first of all, I think you already indicated, I was going to ask personally, what I mean, you, you try to be I, I think you try to be immensely fair uh, in, in, in the book. But uh, I certainly got the sense from what you said that you personally think the lab leak is now by in your mind more credible. 
Yes, I do. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I caveat that by saying we don't have any direct evidence for the lab leak. We don't have any direct evidence for the market spillover yeah. either. Um, we don't have any direct evidence for anything, actually. Um, uh, but I think looking at everything, uh, I think it probably was a research-related accident of some kind, either a researcher getting infected in the field or uh, uh, the virus infecting someone in the laboratory. But I might be wrong. Well, that's the important thing. And then knowing you can be wrong and being willed to be wrong is what makes it science, I think. Um, the, the, do you think we'll find, do you think we'll find, get the answer to this question? Do you think it's going to happen? Uh, I answer that question usually with yes. Uh, and the reason I say that is it's surprising. There's a lot of information. Out there. Alina says the same thing. There's a lot of information that people have. There's a lot of um, uh, emails. There's a lot of uh, messages. There's a lot of facts. There's a lot of database entries, which uh, can't all have been destroyed. Uh, and there are a lot of people who know much more about what took place. I think the Chinese regime is keeping a lid on it for now, but I will be surprised if they manage to achieve that forever. And I think that applies to the market too, because I think if they are in possession of evidence that uh, actually there was a mammal for sale in the market that was infected, they just mm. didn't dare say so because they knew Xi Jinping likes traditional Chinese medicine and doesn't mm. like to hear these kind of things, um, then that'll come out too. Um, it may take a long time, and I often mention the anthrax leak in Sverdlovsk in 1979, which uh, the Soviets insisted was not an anthrax leak, and an international inquiry said wasn't, uh, and then the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, the scientists involved came forward and said, yeah, we left an exhaust pipe filter off that day. Um, so uh, it took a long time, but it did come out in the end. So yes, I, I will be surprised in 10 years time if we still don't know how it started. All right. Okay. That's good. I agree with you. I think it's pretty hard. I keep telling, whenever in the old days, when I used to debate UFO people, I, I'd say, you know, you're imagining this in vast conspiracy where all it takes is one person who really knows something and can make a lot of money from it to say something. And you're absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's very tough for Chinese whistleblowers, but it's not completely impossible. For yeah. And it will over time, it eventually generally happily, these things are come out. Um, do you think what's the likelihood for for this to happen again? Well, that depends on how it started. I would say if this was a, a laboratory accident, then it reinforces my view that actually we're reducing rather than increasing the chances of natural events of this kind, because we've got such good genetic surveillance. And because frankly, we're, people are moving into cities, the contact with wildlife isn't as great as it was, the eating of exotic species, the, certainly the bushmeat trade is gradually giving way to people buying chickens in supermarkets mm. in much of the world, etc. So I think bit by bit, we will get to a place where, um, yes, there are nasty zoonotic transfers into the species, but a bit like Ebola, they're not good enough at spreading to mount pandemics without a bit of help mm -hmm. from some kind of uh, something else that went on, and we don't know what. And so that might be the lesson of this, is that this pandemic couldn't have happened without a bit of help in a lab. But that's a slightly optimistic way of looking at it. I think it's safer for me to say, yes, of course, it's going to happen again someday. 
naturally as well you know even if it even if this one wasn't natural then it probably will happen naturally too and we have to learn really critical lessons about how to manage pandemics and of course the big one is transparency right up right. we could have stopped this in january you know even if it was from a lab we could have stopped it if we had full information right from the start um and chinese uh, medics had been allowed to um know what was happening in their own hospitals yeah, you know, I, I, you're one. This was wonderful because you went right into the, what my thought. In fact, in the end, the, the conclusion is that we, what we've learned is once again something I said at the beginning that 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 withholding information is bad for science. It's bad for the public, and it's the and transparency is the only way, and it's the only way science functions. And you know, Correct. I can't. I I have to tell you, I'll, I'll end with a anecdote. And again, I know people say it's not about you, Lawrence, but when I was in China, I was at the World Economic Forum for a few years and there was one in China and it was a, the whole point of it was it was on innovation, a subject of great interest to you and me. Yep. Um, and what was his, what was funny was it was in um, it wasn't in Beijing, it was another city. But um, one of the way the World Economic Forum works is that there's a big um, sort of, I think, Google and, and Twitter uh, uh, board where people, you know, tweet their thoughts about this. But of course, you're not allowed to use that in China. And, <laughs> and, and, and so the first day, it was blank. And then the Chinese, with their incredible abilities, took that one square mile or less and made it accessible. And the second day, it was all over the place. And I, I think I sent a public tweet. I said, you know, if you're talking about innovation, it's not with, you know, censoring information is not the way to make it happen. Exactly. Interestingly enough, for five hours, my phone didn't get was yeah so i was very impressed with it may have been wow. a, it, it may have been a it may have been a fluke but i think the lesson from this we learn and the china i hope the chinese learn is that transparency is the key to science and the key for a better world for all of us and i have to say thank you for for your transparency and thank you for this i i, I it's been an ultimate joy and i hope um as he might have said from another humphrey bogart movie or actually the same one uh, maybe this will be the beginning of a wonderful friendship. Beginning of a beautiful <laughs> friendship. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.